In today's episode of Backpacker Radio, presented by The Trek, we are joined by Mandy Veggie Redpath and Kevin Karma Savage. Combined, the pair have accumulated more than 30,000 trail miles and an endless number of trail stories to boot. We get a detailed breakdown comparing a few different variations of Camino de Santiago, Frances, Del Norte, and Primitivo, a serendipitous hitchhike which kickstarted the romantic journey, their first shared trek on the Pacific Northwest Trail, the Hayduke Trail, Oregon Coast Trail, Lode High Route, Scottish National Trail, Van Enchantment Trail, and much more. In a nutshell, if you like trail stories and trail beta, you will dig this chat. We wrap the show with a trek propaganda presented by today's guest on why you should through hike trails other than the AT, PCT, or CDT, the triple crown of things that you eat when you're sick, and the ways in which we align with the boomers. But first... You can spend hundreds of dollars to shave ounces off your gear, or with a bit of savvy, thanks to our next sponsor, you can shave weight, eat great, and save some money. Range Meal Bars offer ultralight meal replacement bars that are a whopping 700 calories each and are barely bigger than a deck of cards. The bars are 123 calories per ounce, providing about 20% more calories per weight and nearly three times the total energy of a Cliff Bar. These bars feature real quality ingredients like honey, molasses, nut butters, and chia, not the brown rice syrup and soy protein isolate you'll find in many of the other bars on the market. My favorite flavor is the molasses, ginger, and sea salt, and it's not just because of my cinnamon complexion. The salt beautifully complements the sweetness of the molasses, the ginger adds delicious complexity, and the consistency is just the right amount of softness to ensure the bar goes down easily. Discount time, Backpacker Radio listeners can score a 20% discount by using code THETREK at checkout at rangemealbar.com. Again, that's 20% off by using code THETREK, all one word, at rangemealbar.com. That gets you these bars for less than $5 a piece, about one-third of what most dehydrated meals will set you back. Don't sleep on this deal, as it's only good for a limited time. You know that we love a good poop story here at Backpacker Radio, but Backcountry Dookie isn't all fun and games. In fact, many of the waterways that pass through our most cherished backcountry destinations are feeling the impacts of increased human waste. Enter Packed. Packed Outdoors is on a mission to make backcountry bathroom practice more sustainable. And they're doing it using fungi. Packed has a variety of offerings that make backcountry BMs more sustainable, but the two I'd like to focus on here are their mycelium tabs and wipes. Packed tabs are small wooden discs inoculated with mycelium, which is the root system for fungi, nature's great decomposer, and it branches out underground decomposing organic material. Pax species breaks down poop in the ground faster while killing harmful pathogens like E. coli that can contaminate waterways, harm wildlife, and impact public health. Add three pack tabs to the cat hole, fill with dirt, and the tabs go to work decomposing the waste and converting it into food for other microorganisms in the soil. The packed wipes are dehydrated compressed puck about the size of a bottle cap, and when you add a small squirt of water, it unfolds into a thick nine inch towel. Because the wipes are made from plant-based compounds without the additives found in toilet paper and conventional wipes, they break down faster in the soil, especially with the addition of the packed tabs. In a nutshell, Packed offers a full system for offsetting the unwanted byproducts of our backcountry bowel movements. Discount time! Backpacker Radio listeners can get 20% off all packed orders plus free shipping with code TREK20 at checkout. That's TREK, the number 20, at checkout at packedoutdoors.com. 
That's P-A-C-T outdoors.com. Do not sleep on this deal as it's only good for a limited time. Welcome to Backpacker Radio, presented by The Trek, and your co-host, Zach Badger-Davis, sitting to my right is... Hi, I'm Juliana Chauncey, a.k.a. Chauncey. Question of the day. Um, okay, this one. Oh, wait, we're doing the question of the day later. What do we do here? This is your experiment. Yeah. I'm just along for the ride. Well, you make the call today. That way, when it's wrong, it's your fault. I think it's a nice little, like, prepper. Okay. It's like a nice little warm-up warm the, the vocal cords. Yeah. Ow, now, brown cow. Mama made me mash my M&M's. Oh, Did they ever that, make you do that in chorus? It was never in chorus. Oh. And they didn't I'm force you to do that? Because I wanted to make rhymes about M&M's. Oh. Alliterative We, we had to do chorus. Um, okay, so question of the day is, what makes you go, I'm with the boomers on this one. And the example that they give was would have been my top example. I'm pretty uh, outspoken about it, so I'll just state it here. The music in some restaurants is just too damn loud. You can't take that as yours, though. No. Uh, you give yours, and I'll think of mine. Everything's too damn expensive these yeah. days. Inflation is through the roof. Yeah. It's, but that's every generation, right? I would imagine the boomers probably feel that the least since they're rich and old and they have all the resources. Yeah, but they're the ones always complaining about how expensive things are. Aren't they? I think that's everybody. Well, things are too dang expensive. Yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. I really should have prepared for this. Yeah, I, you know, I love when you come to the show prepared. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do have preparation H for the other segments, but this one. Should we revisit this after? Yeah, we'll do it after. Okay, you I'll, just think I'll, on that. I got plenty of time to think on it. Okay. And then I'll interrupt our guest today with when I when it comes to me. Okay. Yeah, just let it out. Cool. Uh, before we get to our interview, reminders. Yes, the August Patreon is going to be released in just a few days. If you guys are fans of the show and want to go above and beyond to support us and you want some additional content, we release a Patreon-specific episode on the first Wednesday of every month. As I mentioned, the next one's due out in just a few days. And although we haven't recorded it yet, the premise is something. Zach's going to get stoned. Um, if you haven't heard us say it on the past episode, it's happening. I'm not. I'm still, uh, you know, part of corporate America and have yeah. to be conscious about my employment. Right. But Zach doesn't because he works for himself. So Zach's going to get stoned. It's going to be hilarious. I'm going to make sure he does it right in terms of if he's not laughing hard enough, I'm going to make him go outside and try again and then come back it'll until be, it works. It'll honestly be one hit for me. One hit I'm wonder. Not, I'm not Snoop Dogg where I'm probably just high most of the time. Like, you guys have never heard me high. I yeah, promise but you, you can't, that. like, take one hit and then be like, let's do a Patreon where I'm high. You got to do at least three. Unlike some people that I know, one hit is enough. I'm a one-hit wonder. What about three? We'll start with one, and if need be. You're really selling this to the crowd. I'm telling you, I'll get high off of one hit. You'll, okay. It'll be, you won't not pick up that I'm stoned. I promise okay. you that. Promise is a promise. Yeah. Okay. That was fun. Let's get to our interview. Another in-studio experience here. Very excited. Mandy Veggie Redpath is a thru-hiker with more than 17,000 trail miles to her name. Veggie is either living out of a van or her backpack with her partner, Kevin Karma Savage, 
who is with us in studio. Veggie and Karma enjoy living off-grid, birdwatching, and obviously hiking. They just recently completed the Grand Enchantment Trail. Thank you guys so much for joining us here at Backpacker Radio. Thanks for having us. Yeah. We're so excited to be here. Sorry for the awkward setup that we've got. We should get a nice fourth mic, huh? Mm. Yeah. Is that a yes? We have a fourth mic. But it's not nice. Okay. Yeah, yeah, a nice one. Yeah. Yeah. We've got the good mics and then the the, the old principal mics. Yes. Okay. Um, this is a big question. Oh, you're starting with the big one, huh? Yeah. This is, a, I should say, a question that should elicit a long answer. And as I hinted in your preview, in your bio, but give us the trail resume and then we'll kind of boil down the nitty gritty of some of the trails that especially we haven't talked about all that much. Um, and we'll pick apart good stories and all that good stuff. Let's start with veggies since... She started a little bit before me. Sure. So I started in 2008, and I had heard from the Syracuse University Outing Club about the AT. And I was like, well, I don't know if I can do 2,200 miles. And I was studying abroad in Spain and through the internet in 2008, surprisingly. I found a woman who had hiked a Camino de Santiago, and I picked her brain in some cafe in Madrid, and she told me all about it. And I was like, well... My this I was 19, so my 19-year-old brain thought, well, if I could hike 500 miles, clearly that means I can hike 2,200. Mm. So I tried that, loved it, had a lot of blisters, learned a ton. It was really nice to have a bed every night, so that was an interesting one. The next year, I went back and did uh, another Camino and loved it, got the university to pay for that one, so it was fantastic. Definitely want to hear that story. <laughs> was my like undergrad thesis project. So I interviewed people along the way yeah. and they paid for it all. It was great. Damn. All but an extra sweatshirt. Do they just hand you a credit card and say swipe away or how does that work? You keep receipts? I had to keep receipts. So I got approved for a certain number and then um, I kept all my receipts and handed them in. So I did have to front the money, but then they paid me back. Yeah. So Is that was Syracuse? Nice. It was with Syracuse, yeah. Nice. Both my parents went to Syracuse. Nice. Go orange. Yeah. Are you from New York? It. No, I grew up in Maryland, but I needed to get out. And Syracuse seemed like a really good option. And they were right near the Adirondacks and I wanted to get outside more. And so I learned how to backpack in the Adirondacks and through the Caminos. And then eventually took a semester off and went and did the AT. Uh, in 2010. Uh, next up was the Colorado Trail in 2011. And you know, that wasn't enough. So then the PCT was 2012. Um, I took two years off for grad school, but ended up taking a semester off from that because I got a little burnt out and did the CDT. That's where I met Karma. In 2015. In 2015. Yeah. yeah. And I had started hiking the year prior to that in 2014 when I did the PCT as my first long trail. Prior to that, I had never done an overnight backpacking trip uh, besides a little warm-up for the PCT of the Kalal Trail in Kauai. Mm. Uh, so that was my test of the gear. Uh, then after the PCT, I went and did the CDT, and that's where Veggie and I met. But we were going opposite directions. Uh, I was going Just north. Just two ships passing in the night? Pretty well, much. You I took a zero in Lima, Montana. Okay. <laughs> Which one was the iceberg? <laughs> Ooh. One ship's going, the other one's stopping him. I was uh, the okay. iceberg. Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's the one that made us take the zero, so he's the iceberg. Yeah, before we keep going with the trail resume, yeah. I know Chance especially will... Oh, want... don't blame me. Come on. Okay, I want to hear it too. The love. Give us... The, what was the, What's the story behind the zero? If you guys are just 
interacting for the first time on the CDT? Did I understand yep. that correctly? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was going north, like I said, and I was hiking with my buddy Maniac, and we were coming up to Lima, Montana, the uh, interstate that you have to I-15. hitch into. And we didn't want to hitch, and so the little Lima Motel, you can call up at the time, and the uh, guy would come out and pick you up. And so he came out, and he picked up my buddy Maniac and I, and right as we're starting to drive back to the motel, all of a sudden we see three ladies coming southbound, and we're like, is this a mirage or something? Stop There's the three ladies hiking <laughs> south. And so we were like, hey, man, can you like turn around and pick up these hikers? And so he did a U-turn on the interstate and like pulls up. Over the median yeah. coming yeah. straight at wow. us as three ladies. We were like, oh, yeah. shit. This is a murder mobile. I hadn't even got your thumb out yet. Yeah. yeah. And then as hikers, we like, like hiker trash. Wait, you know? real question for you. Yeah. Would you have insisted that the hikers get picked up if it was three guys coming across? I would have maybe not pushed so insistently, <laughs> okay. but yeah, I would have been like, hey, there's hikers over there. Yeah. Can we fit them? <laughs> but uh, so the ladies, they hopped in the vehicle. And after climbing the fence. After climbing a barbed wire fence mm. uh, to get to the vehicle. And we all headed back to the uh, motel. And uh, basically our convincing old convincing argument to get them to stay for a zero was over the cafe food. Uh, this is the only town in the entire CDT that has a public pool. At hmm. the time, had at the time pool. they had a public a pool. Dinner. Now it's not so much the case. We found out uh, last year, but uh, probably because of hikers like us. But we hung out for the day and the next day and as we went back to trail or before we went back to trail i worked up the courage in the laundry room uh laundry room to ask veggie for her phone number like more than just social media i felt like the phone yeah. number was the yeah, way right. to go and uh, let's take this party to sms yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she gave it to me and we stayed in contact for the next year uh via like social media stalking and uh and text and yeah the next year the next year, I was on a road trip, and he was working at Bishop Hostel. Yeah, work stay. Work stay at Bishop Hostel, and I went and visited and convinced him that it was in his best interest to hike the Pacific Northwest Trail. Mm. And I had a group starting, and he should meet us in Seattle, and we were going to road trip out to Glacier and then hike the PNT, and he agreed. Well, what is this? What was uh, your pitch? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, same question. Okay. I mean, my pitch was mostly he was set up to do the AT the next year, but like, do you really want to do the calendar triple like everybody else in three years? <laughs> like, why don't you try something cool like yeah. the Pacific Northwest Trail? Go below the belt. Yeah. <laughs> so I did have a couple other plans for hiking uh, the next year. I did the Tahoe Rim Trail. I uh, did the AZT. And then um, I attempted the Hey Duke with a buddy and we didn't make it all the way through. And that's when I ended up working at the Bishop Hostel when she uh, put it in my ear of the PNT. Mm. And so sure enough, the stars aligned and uh, we went out there and hiked the PNT with probably the most epic crew of hikers I've ever had personally. Best trail family ever. Best, yeah. And, yeah. And through that trail, we fell in love. Mm. Yeah. Details on that, please. So how does it go from, like, text buddies to quit your job and come hike with me to love, bright flowery love? 
Well, I was working seasonal jobs at the time, so I was already off um, at that point. And he was already off because he was hiking the Hey Duke and then switched it up. And so it was, we were both just already quitting jobs. And, and we had both the spark been, was there. I had been single for a while. Um, I we, had two. We had both become uh, experienced hikers on our own at that point. And then when our hiking styles actually meshed, uh, we realized we worked really, really well together. And as we all know, when you're on a trail with somebody else, you get to know them really, really well, very, very quickly. And living in such close quarters, um, I mean, you can't really see somebody at their worst um, or much worse than when you're on the trail. I mean, so, How, like, when you meet on trail and then you farm the little trail romance and then you keep hiking together, like, that's one way of doing it but I feel like when you make a friendship and you stay friends for like a year and a half first it's got to be harder to like dip out of the friend zone into the potentially something more zone because then what if that's not reciprocated and then you fuck up the friend zone thing definitely a worry I think the spark was always there and that friend zone in quotes was really like super flirtatious the whole time Mm. and so it kind of started off as a super flirtatious friend and just like get to know you and then when we actually got on trail and we found out we really meshed it just kind of fell into place she was really smart to plan the trip with a group of other hiker friends that she had known prior i was the only one who was like new to the group Mm. so if for some reason it didn't work out we could have separated and we had that agreement ahead of time Mm -hmm. as like hey uh, we're hiking as a group to start but if for some reason our hiking styles don't mesh like she gave me the A-OK that I can just hike on because mm. um, that was like the freedom that I guess I needed at the time to be able to be like, yeah, I'll join this group. Yeah. And uh, then I re- we realized we we meshed really well together. Yeah. yeah. What night does the romance happen? Was that night two? It was like night one? Bowman Lake. Bowman Lake. So it might have been like a couple nights in. Like it was still in Glacier. In. So we never made it out of the first national park. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, Bowman, I, I Bowman can go Lake. into it a little bit more. I guess. Yes, please. Uh, we're sitting at Bowman Lake in our group campsite with our a couple other buddies, and we decided to go walking off to the shoreline not too far away from where everybody was camping. And then sitting by the shoreline, just like flirt talking, having a good time. We just uh, kind of, Veggie asked me if I was a cuddler. Big important question, right? Big, Huge. You're either a cuddler or you're not a cuddler. Yeah. I said yes. That was the indication that the arm could go around the shoulder finally because I was too chicken to do it back in Lima the year prior. And yep. uh, sitting there getting totally munched on by mosquitoes, not giving a care in the world. Uh, we like hung out until our buddy Crosby came snooping around the corner like, hey, guys, you OK? At and like we- 1 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> and he joined us for a little bit until we realized we should go to bed. And uh, our first kiss didn't happen until uh, what was Pole the- Bridge, Pol- Pol- which Bridge. was the next night. That hostel the next night. Yeah. Didn't happen until the next <laughs> yeah. night. Yeah. Yeah. Is it tough to focus on the cuddling when you're getting munched on by mosquitoes? You know, I didn't realize how much I was getting munched on uh, by mosquitoes until the next day. And my feet were just completely like yeah. eaten and putting back on the socks and the shoes at the time. I was just like, oh, man. You were too enamored to feel yeah. feelings at the time. Exactly. Every yeah. bite had good memories attached. <laughs> yeah. I like to remind him of that frequently. Yeah. <laughs> so 
when you guys first met on the CDT and you took the zero and you have the pool party, was the spark there at that point? Like, did you know that there this was something that you wanted? And, and actually, I'll save the follow-up question because it'll derail that part of the question. Yes, at least for me. No, definitely. And that's why I was so scared to put my arm around her because I was hiking my hike. And she was hiking her hike. And I knew, like, I was like, man, if I put my arm around this girl, like, uh, on this bench, uh, I'm going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so I held off and I only asked for her phone number at the time. And uh, sure enough, now pretty much every bench we pass on trail, we sit down on and have a little kiss. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's adorable. That is cute. Do you ever contemplate how close it was to you guys never crossing paths. Like, it sounds like you barely met. Like, if it was a few seconds later that you had hit the street, you guys might, this romance might not exist. Actually, yes, because we did talk about it. I was slowed down by thunder snow, snow and got stuck on thunder a ridge. Snow. Thunder, thunder snow. snow in Montana <laughs> in July and got slowed down. And we ended up doing a six-mile day in there. And that kind of placed us in Lima when uh. we did. And he sped up. Yeah, we were trying to race some speed hikers out there on trail. And we were, my buddy and I, we're not exactly like trying to break any fastest known time records. But uh, these guys were like, they made massive miles and stuff. And we were like, yo, let's just make it to the hitch point before him. We'll just be in town and like be like, hey, guys, when you show up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so we got to the road a little bit early. And so if they weren't held up and we didn't speed, I guess we... Yeah, wouldn't have seen each other. Well, even if you guys got a hitch that was like, no, I'm not turning around. I got somewhere to be. Yeah, right. we could. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have had that moment before it, we came in. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I don't know if there's anything more to say on that subject. If not, we can continue on the trail. No, I would say we can continue on to what trail we went to after that. The Pacific Northwest Trail. Yeah. So the Pacific Northwest Trail. We finished with our crew as we made that our maiden voyage together and uh from there um we ended up in washington at the coast and uh we were hanging out after trail and trying to find something to do uh to still stay together well i had bought a van my the first van yeah uh right before the pnt and he conveniently had construction skills so we converted that first van in about 13 days and 500 bucks in her mom's driveway in my mom's driveway Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. seattle and so you met the parents yeah i got to meet the mom and uh It was uh, a nerve-wracking moment when I said I had construction experience, but it was like years ago when I was a teen. It was one of my first jobs. And so uh, all of a sudden, or this brand new van of hers that she just bought, I'm like sawzawing out like main support beams and things like that. Uh, and It was her- a used van that I got on Craigslist. Yes. But it was new to you. But it was new to me. (laughs) And uh, her mom came out at one moment and like the ceilings falling down in this van. And she just had this look of like and looked at her and just was like, do you know what you're getting into right now? And I was like, I promise I can put it back together. And sure enough, we put it back together a little bit later and she was impressed after it was done. And we lived in that in between trails for the next Four years. Yeah, four years. Whoa, yeah, that was longer than I thought. It was kind of on and off between seasonal employee housing and trails. So it was Mm -hmm. like that awkward, like, two months in the either side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. 
I'm going to swerve us here because I can tell by the trail resume that it's going to be impossible to do this without going down the stories, which I definitely want to do. Okay. So before we do the trail resume, let's put that on pause. We'll get caught back up to where we are currently in the chronology. I want to go back to the beginning a little bit and okay. hear a little bit more about the Camino de Santiago because you did two different routes. This Actually, was three. Three but The third routes. one was in 2017. So that was okay. one of the next few okay let's let's do all three then because i don't think this okay. is something we've talked about the camino in the past but we haven't really done a comparison of the route i don't know if we've ever okay. talked to anyone who's done it multiple times so sure f fresh but yeah um first just give us a, a brief overview of the three different routes that you did mm -hmm. and then we'll take it from there so essentially what you have to know about the caminos are they were originally these religious pilgrimages and it was to get more, and I'm not religious at all, but it was just a convenient walk for me. It was essentially to get Christians into northern Spain and push the Moors back down into Africa. Hmm. Um, today, it's mostly, you know, a walk. Um, some people are religious. I've never done it for religious purposes, um, but I've done it as a cultural experience of northern Spain. And that's what I find really fascinating. And the original point was to walk out your door and walk to Santiago. And since I've never been a religious person, I kind of continued to the ocean because I thought, well, isn't it better just to walk until you can't walk anymore? Hmm. It's only like 90K more. It's like three days. Pretty easy. Um, so Is that a popular version of the hike? I'd say now more and more. And you can go out to um, the westernmost point or a town a little north of it called Muxia. I actually liked Muxia a little better. Mm. It a um, little less crowded, a little more kind of chill beach vibes, whereas the other spot is a little more, it's almost too hippie for me, mm. if that makes sense. Is this all the Camino de Santiago, or are you talking about one of the three? So I've done three. There are eight, I believe, in Spain, and then four in France. And then it's just kind of this spider web across Europe. Are they all... These to Santiago, though? Yes. So the first one I did was the French route. Um, and that goes from St. Jean-Pierre de Port, actually just over the border in France, to Santiago across north central Spain. And then it ends in Santiago, and you can continue on a separate Camino. Because the Camino just means walk in oh, Spanish. And the Santiago part is because they all end in Santiago. Yes. That at makes the giant sense. cathedral. So all the variations start at different places and they all end at the same spot. Yeah. So anywhere in Europe, you can walk out your door and essentially walk to another route and join in with that route. Got it. And then there's little hostels specifically for the Caminos called albergues along the way that you can stay in for cheaper than most places. Back in 2008, it was only three euros. Oh, wow. In 2017, it was six. Inflation. Yeah, right. Circle back to the question of the day. Yeah. <laughs> Doubles um, the cost, but still cheap. Yeah. yeah. So the, the French route is the main way. It's the most popular, has the most services. You can probably stay at an albergue every like five to 10K if you wanted to go really slowly. Um, and then the second time I did the northern route, which hugs the northern coast of Spain, um, that was awesome. A little more rugged. You had to be able to do bigger days, not like bigger for over there. It wasn't really big compared to anything you do on like the Triple Crown. But um, and then the third way goes halfway from the northern route down and it's called the primitive way or the primitivo. A um, little more rugged than even the northern route. 
but shorter. And these all have different starting points, same endpoint. How much do the paths overlap, if at all? There's a big overlap the last uh, 60 to 100K, I'm a little unsure, into Santiago. And to get the the Pilgrim Passport, which is what you need to get into the albergues, they're really big on the stamps. So you get almost like this passport. And each night you stay in an albergue, you get a stamp and it proves you know, you were there and that's you're on this journey. And so each place has a stamp. And to get that, you have to walk at least 100K. And so that last 100K is kind of annoyingly busy. Mm. And it's the overlap of at least those three different routes. And I think the Portuguese comes in that way as well. And so does the Via de la Plata. So up from the south near Madrid. Yeah. I like the stamps idea. Yeah. The stamps are pretty cool. I like collecting things. I yeah. think that would I think the be ATC fun. was doing a version of that for a while where like different hostels were participating. I'm guessing they just Yeah, but I that. like how like you need it. Like yeah. they check to make sure, sure. They so do. That you can stay. Like that makes it more legit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Give us the best pitch for each of these routes. If you are trying to get into backpacking and want kind of an easier walk where you're just focusing on the physical walk part, it's amazing because you can get all the services of a town, but get the physical aspect to see if you can like physically walk 15 to 20 miles a day. You can have a bed every night, a shower. um, You can eat lunch at a bar halfway through. Um, Also, I think if your parents don't understand your through hiking habit, this is the hike to take your parents on. Mm what I've heard. Yeah. So I did the Primitivo with my mom and I made sure she had no more than a 10 pound pack. She was in her, I think she was 65 around there. Mm -hmm. And so she could walk quite a ways, but she couldn't deal with like the weight of a full backpacking backpack. And so I took a lot of that weight and made it so she had a day pack the whole time. She was fresh off the Hey Duke at that um, time. So your mom was. No, I was. (laughs) (laughs) So any any pack that was like heavy felt light compared to the Hey Duke water carries. Um, so I, I, if you could compare the three routes in terms of like, if this, if route A was going to appeal to someone, route B was going to appeal to a different person, route C. The French way would appeal to most everyone, except for someone looking for a remote experience. Mm. Like it's not remote. So the best thing I can say, if you're going to hike a Camino, don't think of it as a through hike, but think of it as a cultural walk. Um, that happens to have a backpack. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's all kinds of services. People even taxi their backpacks to, they don't call it slack packing, but it's slack packing. Yeah. Um, so there's all kinds of services around to help you out. Um, and it's just a really good way to meet like a international crowd. How about Del Norte? What, so what's the ideal uh, profile of somebody that wants to do that? Someone who can pay attention to maps because it does, or at least it did in 2009, disappear. And in 2009, the guidebook was so bad that I threw it out. There was like an English, the only English guidebook was made by a cyclist and it was consistently wrong. And I went on the internet and printed out a Spanish version. My Spanish was just good enough to be able to like follow a Spanish guidebook. Yeah. Um, This is pre-GPS. I had just literally text describing where to go and following these shells. Um, shells? Oh yeah, so the like trailblazes are shells. 
And so in most of the places, there is like the end of a shell and then all these lines coming into it, like the stereotypical picture of a shell. And this base part is Santiago. And then the lines are all the different roots going into it. Mm. So these shells will be oriented different. So if like the base of the shell is turned to the left, you go left. Kind Except of like in, how they yeah. turn the CDT blazes sometimes to make the little T, sure. the arrow. Yeah. Or they the do AC the double blaze. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about using a trail guide and like it being not great, what are you using it for? Because when I, like, let me paint you the picture of how I view the Camino as someone who's never done it. Um, it's like town to town, walking on like cobblestone, stopping for a glass of wine here and there, sleeping indoors. So is it just telling you like what street to turn on where, or is it telling you like are, how how off road are you in parts, and like are you filling your water? in streams or is it like this tavern will fill your water, you know? So it's a mix of all of that. The Camino Francais, the French route, is far more cobblestones, far more street walking, Um, but they did have a lot of walking through fields. And so what the guidebooks would tell you is, yeah, if you needed to turn on a street, it would often tell you that, or, you know, turn left at the red house. Sometimes you would get and you'd be like, oh shit, which, which house is the red house, you know? Um, and it would tell you the distances between towns, the distance between, they call them bars over there, which is normally like a tavern or, you know, they'd have basic sandwich fare, beer, coffee, a bar was also a coffee shop. Um, and it will tell you the distance, be- distances between those. And you're usually filling up there, um, for your water. They have fountains, but they have questionable water quality. Are you bringing a filter or do you not need one? Well, the first two times I did not bring one and I got sick twice. So I wasn't sure if it was the water or I ate something funky. I'm not sure, but I got pretty bad food poisoning on each of the first two with no filter. I've been to Spain once um, and it was when my friend was studying abroad in Madrid. And that was when like you learn like wine is cheaper than water over there. Are you getting like tap water from a bar and would that possibly need to still be filtered or are you getting bottled water and then like dumping it into your stuff? I drank tap water all over Spain and was fine. It's just the random like town square fountains that people often drink of that are more questionable. Personally, I felt fine drinking the cat tap water in Spain. Um, And then when the bottle got gross, I replaced the bottle. Or if no one would fill it, I would find the place where I could buy a new bottle. Got it. Um, But the guidebooks mostly tell you the distances between the towns and the albergues because not every town will have an albergue or a place to stay. Um, So that's the big thing is the distances. What are the odds of you getting to a town and the albergue being full with it getting more popular? So that is there's also municipal albergues, which are run by the township. And then there are private albergues. There's kind of this odd you know, on the AT when you're like racing to a shelter to get a spot, that same thing happens for the municipal ones because um, you can't book them in advance. It's just whoever shows up. And so people get up super early in the morning and then are trying to aim for 1 p.m. to be there for the day. And then they'll take an afternoon siesta, Spanish style, go out to dinner, they'll hang out. Um, and that wasn't always fun for me. And so sometimes I would call ahead to the private albergues and you can book those one day in advance. Are those also six euro or? They're usually double the price. Okay. So back in the day, they were like six to eight euros. And in 2017, most of them were charging 13. Uh, 
Are they nicer accommodations or services? Yes. Okay. Um, I did get bed bugs on the first one from a municipal one. That was real fun. How do you handle that while hiking? You go to the next albergue, talk to them and say, I think I got bed bugs from this place. And they give you a giant bag and they wash everything for you. Because you're not you're not like carrying a tent in a sleeping bag, right? No, you don't need a tent. You do need a sleeping bag. Okay. Um, most of the albergues don't have enough blankets. And so you will need something to wrap up in. Is it too bougie to bring like a fitted sheet and like a... No, many do. Do they? I prefer just a silk liner. Um, but people will bring their own pillowcases. I could see myself putting weight into that in my pack. If I'm not carrying a tent, like a nice set of sheets. Sure. That would be, this is a a certain style. This is starting to sound nicer and nicer. It is like, like, so instead of carrying a tent, you would need, you know, a bar of soap because the showers are available, but there's no soap, shampoo, Mm. conditioner, none of that, even in the private ones usually. So you'll need a pack towel. You'll need whatever you need to wash up with. And it's, not as encouraged to be as grungy and hiker trashy over there. Mm. So you kind of need a town clothes set. So I have a separate pair of clothes that I sleep in that can also be, I can go out to the bar and have dinner. Yeah. So the weight just shifts. Right. It doesn't all go away. Do you have to put any thought to blending in with Spanish culture? And I don't even know what that would look like. Um, Like, can you just wear any clean t-shirt and you'd be fine? Okay. Yeah. You don't have to. Because I know... If you're in Paris and right. I walked out like this, like I would just scream a white American tourist. I mean, over there you would just scream like you were on the pilgrimage and yeah. everybody else is out there. And so it's easier for you to find other people walking um, and then easier for them to walk up to you and say, oh, are you walking you know, the French way or whatever? And you're like, yes. And then you sit down and have dinner together. And then the next thing you know, you walk 200 miles with mm-hmm. them. What's the language barrier like? I So part of my undergrad was in Spanish, and part of why I stayed over there and did two Caminos in the beginning was to get better at Spanish. And so I really tried to lean into that really hard. Um, I'd say if you had minimal Spanish, you could get by pretty well. I would make sure you brush up and learn directions. Although if you ask three people to directions, two will be right. Hmm. So make sure you ask a few people the same question. They don't always know. And the people at the albergue speak mainly English, maybe? Mainly English, but because it draws such a huge international crowd that you can usually find someone to translate for you. Mm. The only time I had a big issue, I was uh, actually really sick, and I was trying to communicate that I wanted a trash can next to my bed in case I had to throw up Mm. from food poisoning. And I was talking to the guy running that particular albergue, and he spoke Italian and French, no, it was Italian and Portuguese. And I spoke English, a bit of Spanish, and like very minimal French. And so between all of that, we kind of said all the words in all the languages we knew with some gestures. Mm. And after about half an hour, we we communicated. So that was the only time I had a like big, like, I don't know what to do, yeah. but I need a trash can. So <laughs> in addition to wanting to polish your Spanish what was the draw to want to do this in consecutive years? Obviously, I know getting it paid for is a, is a pretty sweet deal. But yeah. um, you mentioned you wanted the cultural cultural experience of northern Spain. But I imagine there was many elements that brought you out there in consecutive years. Can you walk us through that? Mostly because once you do one, it's really easy to do more. 
Um, and you make friends on the Camino, just like you make friends on trails. And they're all like, oh, have you done this one? Have you done this one? And there's a lot of, you know, repeat offenders. They'll keep going back and they'll keep going back and doing all the routes. And so I was getting a little bit of that. And I needed to have a senior thesis for my undergrad. And so I went up to my advisor and I was like, I want to go back to Spain. And she was like, let's do it. Hmm. So this so. is like the ATPCT CDT of Spain. Kind of. I wouldn't, not quite, but kind of. What was your undergrad in? Anthropology and Spanish. Mm. And was it because it was, it had the Spanish context to it that you were able to get it paid for? Or would anyone just going to QS be able to do that? I actually did it for my anthropology um, senior project. And it's a cultural aspect. And so that's why I know a lot of the back history. There's some crazy stories in it. Tell us. Well, the, the craziest one I learned was apparently the cathedral was built in the spot it was because somebody had a vision of like the St. James guy on a horse defending Spain in that spot and then told this person that their bones were buried there. And so they found bones, but it was later discovered that it was probably the bones of that saint's enemy. Hmm. And I was like, man, you just built a cathedral for this guy based on his enemy. It seems a little backwards. Yeah. yeah. What other stories you got? <laughs> well, you can find two different portrayals of Santiago throughout. Santiago, the uh, the pilgrim, the nice peaceful one, and then Santiago, the like the killer. And so he was always also seen on horseback, like moving people out of Spain. So who is this dude? He's some Catholic saint. I'm, I'm not religious. I, I don't know. You got an anthropology degree. Yeah, but I found out it was kind of useless in the real world. <laughs> Fair. True for a lot of college degrees. Yeah. And those are pretty two different representations yeah. of St. James, too. Mm -hmm. Like, how do they come to such different conclusions? And, and religion in general, I guess. It's a lot of telephone. Yeah. Yeah. So in, I don't know if you said this already, what was the thesis? Uh, you know, it's a long time. <laughs> I kind of put it out of my brain sure, as soon as fair. I finished it. Fair enough. But it essentially was a lot of it had to do with why people walked and why people hiked. And what I found the most people said, and this is what I can remember, is that they found peace while walking or it was a walking meditation. Hmm. And so they found that they could deal with their lives better after they took time off and, you know, got rid of everything of their normal concerns and went out for a walk. And so anthropologically speaking, you were in, um, gosh, I'm totally forgetting the exact words, but you were in three different stages where you separated and then the walk was a liminal stage. And then after you finish, you reintegrated and it's a oh, rite of passage. That's the word I'm looking mm. for. So it was like this essentially rite of passage, which helped them transition from one point in their life to another and sorted out in their head while walking. What kind of like injuries do people get on it because i imagine on one hand you're doing low miles you're staying indoors there's not like you're not going through rocks and roots and things that you can roll an ankle on on the other hand walking on cobblestone sometimes itself is annoying and doing road walks day after day can hurt in different ways are people getting injured and what kind of things are you seeing the injuries i've seen are largely blister related um that was really I didn't really see anybody getting super injured other than like some of the worst blisters that I've ever seen. Yeah. I imagine because the hiking is 
easy by the standard of the mm -hmm. trail resume that we're going to go through but also you probably get much more casual people out there so you do and then like the french way has a lot more pavement than the other two so like there's a lot more dirt paths and like you end up on like sheep paths sometimes um and so that was the attraction for me to go to the other ones because there was less pavement less cobblestones there's still pavement and cobblestones but there's less of it on the other two routes mm. it's 500 miles right Give or take. Give or take. Um, I added the extra 90K on to the other towns to make it to the river. So I think the first one I figured it out was 525 and the second one was 550. And do you need a permit for this? Or do no. you need like a special visa? So you can have up to 90 days as a U.S. citizen in Spain per year, I believe. That might have changed since then. So I would do your own research on that. But you need the pilgrim passport which you can get in usually the start, the like traditional starting town of each of them, or you can get it mailed to you via a website. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of trails to talk about here, but before we move on from the Camino stuff, give your best elevator pitch to somebody who is already a certified dirt bag hiker trash, who's done Hey Duke style stuff on why they should go do something like Camino. That's okay. good because she's been doing the elevator pitch on me for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So my elevator pitch is imagine a trail that goes through enough towns that you can have a beer every day at lunch. You can have an espresso if you're a coffee drinker every morning. Um, you can hop inside of a bar if it's raining and drink a few beers. You can eat some different foods, although Spain tends to be on the like bread cheese ham. So as a vegan, I definitely had to carry some extra food in there. Um, but you can have you don't have to carry more than a day of food at a time, even as a vegan. Like I could go grocery store to grocery store. Um, you can sleep in a bed every night and you can meet some amazing people that you never would have met otherwise. Mm. OK, pause, because you said she's been giving you this pitch for a while now. Now you give us the reasons that it hasn't worked yet. Oh, my biggest downside is not being able to camp. Mm. I love when hiking, being able to camp in the backcountry, And so I haven't been convinced to be in an albergue every night, um, sleeping with like 12 to 14 other people. I mean, an AT shelter is bad enough when you got like six people and they're all rolling on their pads and whatnot. You've got a rebuttal. I have a rebuttal. It? Okay. So I'm, the I'm prompting a fight here. Fight. Yeah. Okay, let's do this. The, the private albergues usually don't have more than eight people in a room. And if you get a good crew, that'll take up most of the space. And so like when I went with my mom, we ended up rolling as a crew of six two Americans, two people from Ireland, and two people from Belgium. And we purposely found most of the albergues where we could have a six-person room, and so it was only our crew in the room. Mm. That's a pretty good rebuttal. I did meet <laughs> half of this crew when we went to Ireland, and uh, yeah, I can imagine. They were fun, right? Yeah, they were really fun. Do these albergues offer private rooms? No, but you can have... There are hotels in some of the places, so you can get a hotel, which I think we had to do once with my mom. Um, just because of her ability to hike one day. It was just, she was tired and I was like, well, look, let's just have a hotel day. Mm -hmm. And I think the hotel was like 30 euros. So cheap. when we were paying 26 for two people in a private albergue, it was only like four euros more. Yeah. Okay. I think we can move on from community yeah, stuff just because there's so much the more to talk about. Yeah, that's the most in-depth we've gone. Yeah. <laughs> I liked it. 
If you've listened to Backpacker Radio, you know that both Chance and I are big fans of Gossamer gear, manufacturers of lightweight backpacking gear and accessories. Chance and I both rock Gossamer gear on trail and have put in thousands of miles using their pack shelters and accessories. But because of an epic discount, we'll get to that in a second, today I want to focus on their shelters. Chance throughout the AT crew using Gossamer Gear's The One Shelter, which is both roomy and light, weighing less than one and a half pounds and providing a large vestibule, big enough for all of your gear. As some were saying, it's the one you need. I have used the one on many backpacking trips also, including a Tahoe Rim Trail through hike, and can attest that this is a great option for solo backpackers. Two is my go-to when I'm hitting the backcountry with Sierra, my pup, since it offers 10 square feet of functional space and still weighs less than two pounds. Okay, here's the deal. You can score a 20% discount on Gossamer Gear Shelters by using code TAKESHELTER20 at checkout at gossamergear.com. Again, that's TAKESHELTER20, the number 20, at checkout at gossamergear.com. This deal is only good through August, so definitely don't sleep on this one. So we should probably touch a little bit on, Veggie, your resume before you guys intersected, because that's kind of where we were in the timeline. So you did two Caminos, 2008, 2009, and then this entire thing started because you wanted to prove to yourself that you could do the AT. Yeah. Give us that story. Well, I proved it to myself. I did it. (laughs) But then I studied abroad a second time down in South America in Ecuador and Chile. And I loved it so much I didn't want to come back. And so I ended up taking a semester off and hiking the AT. Uh, I was like a semester ahead anyway in college, so it didn't matter too much, except Syracuse made me get like five signatures to do it and write an essay about how I was going to come back. Apparently, they were really worried about that. This is for the AT. For the AT in 2010. Did I you get credit down. for it? No. Okay. I just, I didn't want to be in school. I was a little burnt out. I wanted to finish, but just not then. Right. And so I took a semester off and hiked the AT. Yeah. It's amazing they, Syracuse made you be so committal to coming back because I just imagine universities don't care. You've already paid the money or at least you owe the money to a bank or something. Well, I guess if they're holding a spot, that's the person who's going to pay that won't yeah. if she doesn't come back. Yeah. I just, if you're taking a semester off, do they hold the spot? I don't know how that works. I think with five signatures, they do. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, every advisor had to sign off on it and I had to sit down and talk to each of them, which was annoying. Yeah. And then it was such a contrast to Prescott where I finished in grad school. And I was like, you know, I'm a little burnout. I think I need to go hike for five months. And I had a mentor and a core faculty and they were like, that's a great idea. Here's the form. And I had 180 characters to write my reasons for taking a semester so off. So tweet, basically. I couldn't even write, yeah. like, I think I wrote, I want to hike the Continental Divide Trail or something. And I couldn't even write Hashtag parentheses. Burned out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of that SpongeBob thing. What I learned in boating school is. Yeah. Um, okay. So you took a semester off to do the AT. Yep. And... Conveniently, I was 21, so I partied my whole way through it. Of course, there you go. Of course. Yeah. How did this compare to your experience on Camino? Because Camino seems in some ways similar based on your description that there's a lot of interesting people that you meet, a lot mm-hmm. of like rich culture and all that, but obviously a much more intensive hiking, backpacking experience. Did, did the Camino adequately prepare you? Because again, your entire thing was if I can do 500, I can do 2200. Did that so in the before I actually went on the AT, I did start backpacking and I ended up the, doing the Adirondack 46er, 
Um, and so I had probably half of it done by the time I did the AT. And so I really did most of that step up in those weekend peak bagging trips. Um, and I taught people how to backpack through that as well, which was amazing. And I loved it. Um, definitely had to turn around a few times in the winter. So I learned winter backpacking uh, in the Adirondacks. And that really made going to the AT quite an easy transition for sure. me. Yeah. Yeah. I guess going from teaching the skill to the mm -hmm. AT is probably maybe a step down in some regards. I mean, yes and no. Sometimes, you know, it's all everybody's learning from everybody while you're teaching. Mm -hmm. So was there a big learning curve switching from pavement to trail? Not really. I guess I had always day hiked before. So it was just, yeah. And okay. I can't tell you the exact like pavement to dirt path ratio on the Caminos. I'm sure, sure it's out there, but there was definitely a decent amount of dirt. Okay. Don't just get hung up on the pavement. Can you compare the community between Camino and AT? More similar or dissimilar? I'd say more similar. You definitely get in little tramelies, um, and it's they're fluid just like on trails here, where you know if somebody takes a day off or does a short day, you might see them later. You're really excited to see them if you haven't seen them for a few hundred miles. Um, I think it's a little more intense on like the AT, PCT, CDT than it is on the Camino. But I don't know, this last family my mom and I made on the Camino was like amazing. Mm. So yeah, more similar. Yeah. And obviously the AT, just based on the trail resume that we've got here is more congruent with what the future had in store for you. Mm -hmm. Was it at this point that you knew that you had the through hiking backpacking oh, yeah. bug yeah yeah where did that happen i can't pinpoint an exact point but i noticed that like after each hike you know i was like i'm never doing this again and then a few months later i'd be like dang if i could only be back out there <laughs> and then i would just plan the next one and mm -hmm. so that just continually happened and so i knew it by the at that i was already like okay what can i do after i graduate i only have one more semester now or one more year. I will say the one thing that stinks when you hike so much, so you can apologize to us after, um, is when we just like skim the surface of each hike to get through them all, we never really like get into any of them and it's not as like in depth. For AT, because we're going to go through a bunch of these. For AT 2010 Nobo, is there one standout story from that hike that you think is worth sharing? That's like this was something from that hike that, if I had to tell you something, I'd tell you about this time. What was cool about that time, I did it all with paper maps. Hmm. I had a flip phone, um, which I would occasionally, if I saw something like storm clouds come in and I was trying to plan the weather, I would text my mom to Google the weather and text me back. So if I was up on a mountain and I had like, you know, the one bar of cell phone service, no data, um, and I would text her and see it like, are you near a computer? And she would say, let me borrow my friends because she'd be at a friend's house. And she would Google the weather for the specific location and like tell me if I was going to get rained on. And so it was just such a different world with like paper maps and having, you know, either AWOL or the ATC guidebook, one of those two, and just having to stare at the maps all the time. Um, I think, and having learned how to backpack with topo maps, I really value that. 
Were there any parts that you got lost? No, but I did get turned around one day. And I was trying, I hung out with a friend all morning who met me at a shelter and I left late and I beelined it and it was this boulder field in Pennsylvania. And I got all excited because I was like, oh yeah, I get to climb on all the rocks. Totally went right off the trail, just bounding around on the rocks, realized I was off trail, went back and it was this 90 degree turn. And in my rush to catch up with my friends, I ended up going back three miles. Oh, wow. It was three miles. I have almost the yeah. exact same story in Pennsylvania, but I peeled off to take a dump. And I was a, I was ahead of my friends. I was trying to beat them to a shelter or something like that. And I was racing when I got back to the trail. And as I'm going down the trail, I see the hiking crew that I'm trying to like get yeah. ahead of. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, what are you doing? Because at that point, I still think I'm going northbound. Right. They're like, you're going the wrong way, dude. <laughs> and you feel like such an asshole when you've done three bonus miles like that. I had told a story, I can't remember what episode it was, it was a while back, but when I went up Lehigh Gap on that like rock scramble, I lost the trail and I ended up at this like hidden campsite with like this big rock ledge and graffiti and I had to go over the ledge to get back to the trail, like a sketchy climb to do with a backpack. And I cannot remember what context, if it was at trail days, if it was in a message, like what context it was, but the person who made that campsite heard that episode and was like you found my spot and i was like what the heck like wild stuff yeah you could get definitely turned around up there yeah i think the funnier part was after i you know redid those three miles and kept going it was pennsylvania where the map looks red from roads and on one of those road crossings i was crossing it and like in the middle of the trail was i all of a sudden looked up and there were legs in the air and an ass out and i came across two people having sex <gasps> on the trail and the guy pulled out and turned around, and I was just like, "You I saw don't... him pull out? Yes, you saw." And he was wearing it. a Bon Jovi shirt, <laughs> and so Bon Jovi has forever ruined me. Like every time I hear that name, I think of this couple, and I was like, "What?" That close to a road? Yeah, they had, their car was you know maybe fifty feet away, and I think they thought they were off you know, in the middle of nowhere and they didn't realize they were next to the AT. Yeah. Are or, they like they hiding their bits about it or are they no. just like dangling nope. them? Well, the girl had a sundress that she pulled down and the guy just stared at me and I just walked away. Uh-huh. I had no, I was like, I don't know what to say. I'm just going to keep walking. <laughs> wow. I bet you can't get that side out of your mind. No. <laughs> Yikes. Okay. So you wrap the AT 2010. Do you have any good like noob stories? Because it seems like it's easy to avoid that on something like Camino because you're in town a couple times per day. AT, you know, at least there's points where you're going a few days between towns. Yeah. I ended up bringing snowshoes to start because I saw that it was supposed to snow and everybody made fun of me on the approach trail. <laughs> and then it snowed. It was supposed to snow like a few inches and yeah. it snowed one to three feet that night. <clears throat> and then I had snowshoes and everybody else did not. <laughs> you're... <laughs> I feel like a trail name could have stemmed out yeah, of that. Yeah, I'm surprised scenario. you got veggie. Yeah. As you know, no, no trail names from that. Yeah. But I had to send them home because so many people post hold that I ended up carrying the snowshoes because they weren't, you know, mm. you just too awkward with all the post holes. Yeah. Okay, so timeline, you finished the AT what month? Three days before my Syracuse semester started. Wow. So August 28th, I think. Okay. And then you finish your last semester at school, so you graduate. Two in, more after. Two more, so yeah. you graduate in May of the following year of 2011? 11, yeah. 
And I see you didn't waste much time to get on your next through hike. Yeah, I did the Colorado Trail. Starting in June, July? July. It was a heavy snow year. And so I was monitoring that. And I think I started mid-July, like the 11th or 11th, I want to say. 10th, 11th. Had you been out west yet? Because it sounds like so far you're an East Coast girly. Not hiking. I had grown up doing summers out in Washington State, but not hiking, really. What kind of... uh surprises did you get from the Colorado Trail with that? Headaches. Learned all about altitude. And I learned that I had a lack of appetite. And so I was really struggling to eat the calories that I needed. And so I really struggled with that in Colorado that year. I got headaches. So I had to start taking Tylenol when I would get higher and just lack of appetite. Hmm. That was my biggest holy shit moment in Colorado, I guess. Did you enjoy it despite that part of it? Yeah. And I took my time and I ended up adding five 14ers to it, um, which I was still using only maps. And so I had these printouts that I had printed out in a library beforehand of like how to like the routes up five 14ers that were close. And so I was, you know, looking at my paper maps and these like descriptions of 14er climbs. And that was really cool. Hmm. Glad I did that. And what was the navigation for the trail itself? Because I think I was using far out by the time that I got around to it or I guess gut hook at the time, but are you using just traditional Nat Geo maps or what? At the time they had this map book that was like this spiral bound book of like eight and a half by 11. And I had those and I had a description and I had ripped up the book and the maps and put them in all my resupply boxes. So I would get to town and I would overlap them. So I, in case I missed a resupply box, I wasn't totally screwed. Um, but I had you know, a section of maps and a section of description. Hmm. Just kind of went with it. How are you doing with the lack of people? Because Camino, popular. AT, popular. You go out to the Colorado Trail, not many people. For me, not to make it about me, but like I get scared when I camp alone. I just don't like it because I like hear every sound. So Mm -hmm. far, you've only been on these trails that have had a lot of people around you. What's it like to now be on the Colorado Trail where it's so remote and there's so many less hikers? I think I ran into like seven hikers that entire time. Um, Three guys from Denver and then a few others. And I did end up meeting Hopalong and Cookie Monster and No Amp like right at the end. But we didn't actually hike together. But it was like the day before we finished or so. Um, And I ended up getting used books and I would rip them in half and mail the next half ahead. And so I took it as an opportunity to hang out with myself and read. I've always been a big reader and I didn't audiobooks weren't really a thing that much in 2011 because I was still using a flip phone. (laughs) And so I was uh, just, you know, reading. Are you not afraid? I mean, there was times I was afraid. Uh, The only time I was like ever truly afraid on trail was on the AT, actually. Really? Yeah. Because in 2010, I was hiking. It was somewhere in Virginia and I was catching up to my friends and I was night hiking and my headlamp batteries died. So I'm like, using my flip phone light to change the batteries in my headphone. And by the time I did it, this donkey came up to me and I don't- It was Jersey? It was Virginia. Oh. And so this donkey scares me. So I'm already on edge and I go to cross a road and I distinctly remember after this road, there was an 1100 foot climb and there was a guy in the parking lot in a really beat up old van with a very vicious sounding dog. Mm. And he was clearly sleeping in the front seat. And I had to go near him to get on the trail. And he turned at me. And you know when you just get that gut feeling, like, not right, not right? 
So I got that and he started to open the door and maybe he was being super nice. I don't know. But my gut instinct said to run. And I ran with my backpack up that 1100 foot climb because I saw he had a big gut and I was like, he can't run this. I can run this. And so I ran up and I hiked like seven extra miles to get to my friends. You said big gut, not big gun, right? Big gut. Big yeah. Gut. So we yeah. had a big old stomach. And so I knew he wouldn't be in shape enough yeah. to like run up that climb. Sheesh. And that's the only time I've ever been truly afraid. Okay. So like the nature sounds don't bug you. No, I love it. Yeah. We're different people. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. We'll, yeah. We'll get to the wildlife <laughs> photography part of the conversation here. I guess wherever it's relevant. Rain me in. Yeah. Um, Okay, so Colorado Trail, any other standout stories or highlights, um, lowlights? Learned all about the afternoon thunderstorms. That was a steep learning curve. Mm-hmm. Got caught above treeline a few times. We were reminded of that today. John <laughs> drove through a flood on the way here. I'm like texting Zach that I'm going to be, I'm like, Zach, I know I should be leaving my house right now. I cannot leave right now. Like it's hailing the size of quarters outside of my window and Zach's sitting in golden and there's no rain. Yeah. And so I was sending, I was sending photos. It looks like it's snowing outside and I get in my car to drive here and the, the road intersection outside of my house is flooded. Like <laughs> I was telling him, I'm telling more of the listener now cause we all know this story, but I was telling Zach or I sent him a video. There was a semi truck that went down the road and the entire back wheels of it, you couldn't see cause it was all underwater. And I was like, well, I got the adventure rav four for a reason, and I pushed the sport button. But (laughs) yeah, the hail to—I mean, what is with the weather this spring? It's every day there's like these crazy thunderstorms, lightning, tornado warnings. I I think May and June were the highest or the most precipitous months on record. It hasn't been like this since I've lived here, not to this extent. Yeah, there was eight years. There was extreme flooding in 2012 when I first moved here, but yeah, since then. Sheesh. Okay. Yeah. So you learned about that. Yeah. Steep learning curve. Just like how did that go? I mean, I just kind of started waking up a little earlier and doing miles in the morning. Um, And I think I planned it super chill. I think I was doing 15s just to be out there and out there as long as I could and meet. I figured people would pass me and I'd meet them that way, which didn't end up happening. Did you have any like strategies or go to like? stories to tell for the stretch where you get that like 30 miles where you're above 13,000 feet? I had great weather for that particular section. Did you? Yeah. I don't know how, but did. That's nice. That one was okay. Okay. Fast forward another year, we're on the PCT. Yep. And you did that northbound? Yep. Like most people. Yeah. So this is before the permit, right? Yes. Well, you had to get a permit, but it was free. And it wasn't limited to 50 people. Correct. Yeah. You Do still they charge had... you for a permit now? Uh, the permit's free, right? I think so. I think you have to pay, okay. you have to pay for it. You said, and it was free. And I was like, wait, did that change? Yeah. I, I've just been dealing with permits for other things recently. So <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was still when the PCT was hosting or the PCTA was hosting the kickoff. Oh, yeah. Did you start during oh, the kickoff? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Started on Sunday after kickoff. It's funny how crazily that switched. <laughs> it went from being like, everybody, let's start on this day to being like, we're cutting it at this many people mm-hmm. and we're making it as difficult as possible. I guess let's go down memory lane and start there. What What was it like having, and I'm proud of myself for this, having experienced PCTA D-Z-K-O. Nice, you did it. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. How was Um, it experiencing that while it was around? I loved it. Um, It was right for that year. And I can see why they don't do it anymore. But 
at the time with the number of people, I think it was good. Um, I met a bunch of people right at the start that became friends later on. Um, and I started the PCT with Hopalong, who I had met the year before. Neither of us had desert experience. And so we were like, well, let's start together. And if we you know, have fun, we'll keep going and no obligations to stay. But we ended up hiking, I think, all but 200 miles of it together. Yeah. Um, loved it. It was great. Had a steep learning curve to heat. <laughs> if someone doesn't know, what is PCT ADZKO? The best way I would describe it is a conglomeration of hikers that want to start the PCT that year, as well as a reunion for PCT hikers of any year in the past. Um, so that year, you know, there was a huge group of people starting in or around kickoff. And it was nice because they would, would give you lectures on like how to use your ice axe, when to practice self-arresting, when you need your bear canister, you know, the basic ethics of the trail. And that really helped everyone be on the same page of um, where to get the gear you needed when you needed it. I kind of like that idea of giving, and I think it is AZD, not ADZ, because it's annual zero day. But I like yeah. the idea of giving an ice axe tutorial at the beginning. I yeah. think that like that is a good idea, even though I understand the impracticality of having everyone bottleneck. Mm -hmm. Was that helpful for you when you got to the Sierra? I had already learned that I did a Knowles course, actually a Knowles semester, because I wanted to see if I liked mountaineering. And it was something that I didn't feel comfortable teaching myself. And so between the Colorado Trail and the PCT, I did like a backpacking, which was comical because I led part of it, but um, backpacking, sea kayaking and mountaineering. And so I really dove into that there. But it was a really good refresher to get that thought in your mind of like, OK, this is a trail where I need some of those skills. Well, I didn't love mountaineering enough to pursue it. I did get the fundamental skills there. And so it was nice to have people all get together and talk about that together. So if you did go into the Sierras as a team and need that, you had people that were at least thinking about it. Um, you take in steering wheel for a sec, Sean. Yeah. Let's go off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was a crazy year, though. It was super dry. I did the whole Sierras in sandals. There was hardly any snow. Was it so, so that it was 11 that was the crazy snow year? Yes. Okay, so you went right after that. Yes. Were you freaking out from, like, the hearsay of what 11 had? No, because I saw pictures of the Sierra and I was like, oh, they'll be melted out by then. And back then they had this email listserv, the PCTL, I think it was called. And so every week you would get updates where everybody would email this listserv and then they would summarize it and give you an email. Um, and that helped. And so I was seeing people ahead of me that were going in and they were saying like, oh, no snow gear needed or snow gear needed here, um, but not here. All the communal section of are out now. Uh wasn't an email back yeah, then. I remember when I did it in 17, they like, there were still like hints of the email. Like, yeah, it, it existed in some extent, but there were just other options. But yeah, that's so that was when people were mainly using that. Yeah, that was so that was the first year I had a smartphone, but I didn't have GPS on the smartphone. And so I could get email on it and read through that on that smartphone. And things were starting to move towards the Facebook group kind of page. So the Facebook group, you would find information. And then this email, you would find information. And do people have sat navs at this point? Like, are you bringing a Garmin or an inReach? Some people did. I still paper mapped it with Half Miles Maps back then. The start of Half Miles app, I think, was that year. 
but I never got it. It was free, but I felt like I didn't need it. The trail was marked enough that, you know, with a, with a good usage of maps, you could find it no problem. Yeah, in 2014, I just used paper maps in half mile. Uh, it was mm-hmm. the first year I think that far out or got at the time was uh, starting on the PCT. And I got it for the Southern California section and it worked for the first section, but then the Northern California section didn't work. And there were so many glitches that at, at the time that I was just like, oh, half mile is working great. So I just literally with that little bit of gps that showed the green light if you were on trail and then it was like if you're off a little bit it went yellow a little bit further it went red and you're like oh i'm 130 feet off trail let me walk this way and then it would tell you you're like 200 feet and you're like oh i'm walking the wrong way i need to go the other way and you would find trail and that worked great on the pct that, uh, at least that time yeah. I forgot about Half Mile. It's been a minute since uh, I've even heard that reference. I really miss it. I thought that was the most fun app. Yeah. Uh, Does it still exist? Uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't looked checked. into the PCT yeah. in a while, so. Not to make this a far out ad again, but it's just so efficient that it it's tough to compete with that. It is, but you lost some of the charm, like not yeah. having the red line. It was like totally. really, really beautiful. Um, and now I mean, you still had the red line on half miles paper maps. I'm pretty sure that line was red. Yeah, on the paper maps. Yeah. So I guess with the two apps together, it worked. Mm-hmm. Do you, as someone who started with paper maps and did like so much with paper maps, have any strong feelings about people being so dependent on things like far out now you do you breathe heavy there <laughs> we don't want to we don't want to go into strong feelings oh on yes it. we do oh, so yes we do the best feelings okay um i feel like people depend too much on it i think it's a wonderful tool that should be used in conjunction with the ability to at least read the underlining topos and i got really frustrated when i pulled up like the topos on gut hook and realize the topos were 200 feet in some sections and you can totally lose that view in a 200 foot contour they're almost useless the cdt last year was yeah. so bad we were using it and topo lines were just horrible and we're like oh my gosh what is going on with this and so we were mostly on gaia just so we can uh, actually see the mountain ranges mm-hmm. that we were walking through yeah what's the preferred distance between topos for you 40 40 feet I mean, 20 is cool if it's really flat, but 40 is generally easy enough to read the terrain. Um, so I, I just feel like Gut Hook is a great, great, far out, sorry, um, <laughs> is a great tool if you can also, if that fails for whatever reason, like your phone gets submerged in something and someone hands you a paper map, you should be able to do basic, like, let me orient the map in the direction that sure. I'm going and look, okay, I can look at a watch and say, okay, I'm making this much time per mile. Yeah. You should be able to do that basic as a backup. Like yeah. knowing how to math without a calculator. Yeah. Like I still use calculators all the time, but if right. somebody took it away, I can do two plus two most of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had an instance on the CDT last year where a phone got damaged, not ours, it was somebody else's phone got damaged. And then another hiker had paper maps and mm-hmm. gave them the paper maps to be able to get by. And he did, had no idea how to read the paper maps. And just one of those situations of like, yo, man, you really don't know how to yeah. navigate yourself besides that red line on yeah. the GPS. Have you ever encountered a scenario navigating where you also required a compass or was just having the topo maps sufficient? Um, on the Hey Duke, we yeah. had the compass and our um, paper maps and we never actually needed it. Uh, we were able to use our GPS the whole way, um, but we were along the way 
making sure we were like freshened up and we were like setting like checking our bearings and like making sure we can like see which peaks were around us and such mm -hmm. um, just so we knew we knew how to do it yeah <laughs> because I, like you lose that, yeah. I was gonna say that's an easier one to lose that's yeah what you're just about to say you definitely lose that skill one thing we did notice on the hey duke is your phone's gps often is great until you reach seven days with no service and mm -hmm. we hit one seven days stretch because we cashed out there where we literally didn't hit any cell phone signal and the GPS faltered because it needs that satellite data input every mm. seven days. Even if you get one bar and like one X, that's enough to reset your phone's GPS. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know what's interesting is the way that we were just talking about half mile being like the gold standard for apps back in the day in the PCT. Mm -hmm. The conversation we're having right now is going to be so outdated in two years probably. Oh, absolutely. Just with having Starlink yeah. internet everywhere. Like the situation <laughs> that you're describing isn't going to exist in a short period of time. You blink twice and the map appears in front of your exactly. eyeballs. Exactly. With your little contacts. Yeah. Wearing. Whatever that new Apple Vision Pro, you're just using that to get around. Well, that years ago crazy. they were talking about drone delivery services, True. and I'm still waiting on that. I heard that. There. I think that's just like a trail legend. Because <laughs> I heard is. that too when I was on trail. I think there's just someone on each trail spreading. Somebody's that just hoping. Yeah. 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 I think Amazon did that as a Black Friday stunt, like to get to drum up promotion of whatever sale they were running. But yeah, that was certainly talk of the town for a little bit. Um, Anything else from PCT 2012 that you want to hit on? It was I, a good year. Good year. Mm -hmm. That was a that was the first of many drought years of memory serves, right? Yeah, learned all about wildfires. Okay. East Coast coming to West Coast, didn't really know the wildfire game. I think that was like the first year of a decade of fires basically where it just became mm -hmm. the norm, but at that time it, it that was not the norm. How did that impact your hike woke up a few days with because i cowboy camped a lot more back then and woke up with you know sleeping bag covered in ash and realized i had to figure out what was going on and trying to find where i could find information um especially when you had no cell phone service and there was one place i remember where i went up and it said trail closed and there was a fire guy there and i asked him and he was like oh pct hikers can go in as long as you can hike 10 more miles and i was like it's 4 p.m. I can do 10 more miles on the PCT. It was like, yeah, you literally, you have to walk 10 miles if I let you through. And Hopalong and I were like, yeah, yeah, sure, okay, fine. And partway through, we looked over and the fire was really close. Hmm. And so I understood And that night, it was hard to breathe. Um, just all that kind of particles and whatnot. I remember putting my scarf over my face. Yeah. Um, there was a, a few day stretch on the PCT where I was hiking with my bandana over my mm -hmm. face and my parents were trying to convince me to get off the trail because I for weeks after I finished the PCT, I was waking up with a cough in the morning. So mm -hmm. I can't say for sure that was the reason, but that was the reason. Okay, so now I think we've conjoined timelines because the next hike that I've got is the CDT in 2015. Yep. You guys cross paths, mm -hmm. have a magic pool party moment. Um, <laughs> is there anything from your through hikes individually that you want to share about your time in the CDT? Um, maybe I'll say like uh, I really loved getting to the CDT uh, after doing the PCT first and people were just following the trail. And uh, Sorry, remind me what year was the PCT? That was the uh, 2014 14. um, and being my first through hike I got a lot of the fear mongering uh, and a lot of the 
the AT is the best trail. And uh, and then I was introduced to the Triple Crown. And I very quickly was like, I'm doing the Triple Crown in three years. I'm, I'm going to do this PCT, go do the CDT, and then I'm hopping on that AT. So the next year I went and did the CDT and very quickly got introduced to the book Desert Solitaire. Somebody gave it to me in the... Uh, in the um, in the desert section of the trail, and uh, I was reading that along, and I was like, "Oh man, I don't know if I want to hike the AT next year." And I started. Um, or somebody introduced me then to the Hey Duke and the Monkey Wrench Gang, and I learned about that trail. And I was like, "Monkey man. Wrench Gang." That's what it's the, based on. Yeah, the Monkey uh, Wrench Gang by Ed Abbey. The Monkey Wrench Gang. Yeah. yeah, I love oh knowing more than gosh. Zach on certain things. <laughs> it's uh <laughs> It's a very really, humble. That's how it got the uh, name. That's what the Hey Duke's named after. Yeah, there's yeah. a George Washington Hey Duke is the main character in the Monkey Wrench Gang, and his entire mission basically is to destroy the Glen Canyon Dam. And so he is going through all these kind of areas of Utah, um, basically trying to destroy that dam. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the book, it, or I believe it is the book that sparked the Earth First movement back in the 70s or 60s. I don't know when it came out. But. It was largely against infrastructure, against mining, against logging. Damming. Wanted, yeah, damming. Yeah. It wanted to keep the, you know, the wild wild. Um, so I yeah. wanted to go out and do the Hey Duke then, and my Triple Crown plans completely changed uh, mm -hmm. from that point on, um, mostly because the CDT releases you from that red line. They give you so many extra options of trail, and you can choose your adventure. You don't want to go up that mountain. You want to take a lower route. You can do it. You want to just go wandering through the desert and then end up back on trail miles down the road. You can. And that was so freeing to me. And I just was like, you know, my heart's not in the AT. And so the next year, I made plans with a friend to go and do the Hey Duke. Um, yeah, um, I guess what I was trying to say is what I loved about doing the CDT was that it freed me from that red line. Hmm. I would yeah. second that for sure. Just that ability to say, okay, I'm going to walk from here to here and I want to choose where I walk. And I want to choose, you know, even if it's as simple as I prefer to hike the Gila than the Black Range or, you know, today I need more water because it's 100 degrees. And this route over here has two water sources and the main route has one. Mm -hmm. And I think that was just so utterly freeing that mm -hmm. as long as you were walking in, you know, a generally northbound way or a generally southbound way, you could do that. Or, you know, like in the winds, if you had the energy, you could add the Cirque or you could add Knapsack Coal. And those things are, you know, just totally acceptable to just say, no, nah, I don't feel like hiking that way this year, or I want to go this way, or man, that peak looks really cool. I'm going to just climb it. Yeah. How yeah. bound to the red line were you coming from the AT? Because obviously the PCT, mm -hmm. I started on that. And mm -hmm. when I flipped around the Sierra, because we had a heavy snow year, that's where everyone that had done the AT first stopped and they got off trail. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't like, I couldn't figure it out. Like, why are these people all stopping? Because I didn't have that. AT experience to tell me foot needs to touch foot needs to touch foot so I was just confused and that's mm -hmm. where you started but having done the AT first so were you more bound to that idea I blue blazed the prezies even on the first AT I hit every peak on that ridge and so that was I think the first time on the AT where I was like well the AT is taking the safe route like it's good it hit some of the peaks but why not hit all of them? And so I hit all of them there. And 
that kind of started that, I would okay. say. Hmm. But I mean, I've just liked the freedom to choose, you know, like, okay, this route is a suggestion. Now pick where you want to go. And yeah, yeah, I mean, when I got to the, the San Juans on the CDT and it was just coated in snow and you just can't walk the red line anymore because it's completely unsafe. Uh, right. And so you're ending up reading the snow and going in the, the safe path and the path of least resistance, I guess. Um, so, yeah. Do you think there's a difference using paper maps versus using something digital like gut hook or far out in terms of wanting that continuous footpath? Because I feel like on a paper map, you kind of decide where you're going more versus an app where it's showing you this is where you need to go. Mm. Does that impact it at all, do you think? Maybe. I would always, so even the first year I used Far Out was 15 on the CDT. And because that was the first year he was on the CDT, it wasn't quite like fully there. And so I had the lay tracks on Gaia. And so I had lay maps, Gaia, and I had Far Out. And I would switch between the three. And so I think it's great to have far out, especially for that water report. I think that's mm -hmm. key. And that's the thing I love the most about it. But having, you know, a bigger and I'll download way bigger maps on Gaia so I can look and see, oh, look, I can take this trail and meet back up with it over here because I want to go camp by this lake. Yeah. Get all those forest service mm -hmm. roads that aren't mentioned on far out. And yeah. Such. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So not to fast forward too much, but you guys did the CDT last year as well. Yep. How has it, have things been more consolidated in terms of everything that you need is available on far out as opposed to having to triangulate all these things amongst three different apps or services? Yeah, everything has been mostly consolidated yeah. onto far out. Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I we, we met a lot more people that were, you know, I'm following the red line the whole way. Mm -hmm. And we found it especially funny when they told us this in the Gila. Right. <laughs> They're on the alternate. I mean, the same yeah. thing's true in the PCT yeah. where mm -hmm. everybody does Crater Lake. Exactly. It's right? not the official PCT. Yeah. yeah. And people still think they're being purist at that point. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's ironic. Um, I guess like a lot more of, you know, in New Mexico, there was a lot more tread and trail. So especially in that first like 80 miles and maybe it was because I went through southbound and yeah, no, even monsoon, I went but... through northbound and it was the same. Like it was really fun when you started the CDT in the sense that once you left the border, you were following cow paths and you don't know which path you're getting on. You're all of a sudden here and there and you're doing line of sight of poles, but half of them were knocked down. And, and so walking or they're up, all facing for northbound. Yeah, they were all facing northbound when they weren't knocked down. Um, but this year when we went out there seven years later, it was pretty impressive. The human track now that is pretty well defined of all the people have started, they're following the red line. So they're staying on one cow track basically. And so unless you're not paying attention, um, you're most likely going to be able to follow that human path now going yeah. through. Is that a good thing or do you miss the back in my day when it was a bit more wild? I mean, I guess you automatically do that back in my right. day thing, but uh, it's... Just the like trail. the boomers. Yeah, like the boomers. <laughs> yeah, the, the trail's way evolving. Way to tie it back. Perfect. Uh. <laughs> it's good and bad. Yeah. Um, so on the subject of the CDT, I noticed that on your website, you guys have a post about why the Wyoming Basin is awesome, which is, I don't know, I controversial. It might be too strong of a term, but <laughs> certainly flies in the face of a lot of what CDT hikers say. 
give us the pitch on why the basin is so good. Okay. The basin is so good because either direction, it gives you a mental and physical break. So if you're coming northbound like we just did, and you've made it through Colorado, which seems like a feat in and of itself if you haven't been killed by lightning in Colorado, and you get, you know, four or five days, however long it takes you to just feel like, man, I can slam these miles. You Mm. can easily hit 30s. You feel like you're flying because it's lower elevation. It's easier terrain. And there's not too much to look at unless you're good at looking for pronghorn. And there's not really any shade. So you're not taking that many breaks. And same, and you get a break before you go into the winds and, you know, try and do those gnarlier routes like the Cirque or Knapsack. And the same thing holds true going southbound. You just get through the winds. You've inevitably had some sort of experience in the winds. And then before you get Colorado, you get that mindset shift and that physical like, yes, I'm going to slam these miles. I'm going to do this section. And you feel so good physically to just get through it. That's my pitch. That's great. I love that. (laughs) Is it comparable at all to getting through Virginia and the AT? Because I know those are, I, I know Northern Virginia, like once you get through the Shenneys is not necessarily difficult miles, but the people do the four state challenge and there's very few places on the AT where a lot of people could even attempt 40 miles. I'm just trying to think of the closest corollary in AT terminology. I love Virginia. It's like easy hiking, rolling hills. Beautiful you views. S- you can stick on an audio book and yeah. just roll with it. Okay, so not comfortable. So I, I personally, I like those sections yeah. that people find frustrating a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I always look for something, right? Like, so the basin also, if you actually are looking, has a ton of wildlife. Like, we had so much fun looking at the wild horses. I think we saw, like, 60 or 70 pronghorns so prong in there. Um, even the desert horned toads, if you look really closely at those, those are fascinating little dragons. You just have to look. Yeah. Did you get good shots of that with your wildlife photography? I did. Yeah. Good segue now. Walk us through where did the origin of the wildlife photography start? What is your setup? All those good things. Well, <laughs> we ended up getting stuck in Vail during the pandemic. And I ended up having, well, we had this terrible neighbor. And so I didn't want to be in the apartment that we were stuck in. And he had an old nikon camera yeah like an old nikon d3200 it's like not very great it basically gets a little better than i shot i think it had like a 200 millimeter lens on it yeah but i mean like anyway so i picked (laughs) it up because he wasn't using it and we were carting it around to like seasonal jobs and whatnot and i walked the bus loop which was you know acceptable during that like initial phase of the pandemic and i just started taking pictures of birds because that was all that was out there so Mm -hmm. like some robins some mountain bluebirds I was even just photographing magpies because, I mean, they are pretty if you look at them. Sure. But so I started doing that just to be out of the apartment and not hear like hours and hours of dubstep through the wall. And that's what made your neighbor terrible. The continuous dubstep. That was just part of it. It only takes so much bass. (laughs) Circle back to the question of the day. Music is too dang loud. (laughs) And uh, so that kind of branched out from there. And eventually I got my own setup. And I'm currently using Olympus, which just changed their name to OM System. Um, they are theoretically lighter. I would not call it light for through hiking standards, but they are lighter in terms of most camera equipment. And I just, by the time we got to the CDT two years later, I couldn't imagine hiking and not being able to get a good photo of some of the birds and wildlife. Mm. Phones are good, but they're only so good. Right. 
so you guys have bird watching on your uh, about mm-hmm. section. Yeah. And I've been seeing a lot of memes about how the older you get, the more interested in bird watching you become. Totally yeah. so true. I, I know it's around the corner. I just don't know when it's going to creep up. What makes that interesting to anyone? I think once you got that lens and you can really see it up close or binoculars and you see the detail in birds and the difference in so many different ones, it's, it just becomes really fascinating. And it's not just birds, but any animal that we happen to see from like the little lizards or the, the what were that toad that you just mentioned? Oh, yeah. The desert horn toad. The desert horn toad. Oh man, they like bring us so much so much joy when we're hiking and so that's what we're constantly looking for um pretty much anything birds do lizards do you know your birds well no i've got he actually knows them pretty well um i've slowly gotten better and the way i've done that is through photography so i use them as practice they're actually surprisingly hard to get in flight which has been a fun challenge Um, but just getting the photo, because if I'm looking through binoculars, I am not looking at the right identification point. And then I go to the book and it's like, oh, well, what shape was the beak? And I was looking at the tail feathers, you know? And so if I have a few pictures of it, then I can take it back to the book or a few apps that I use, and then I can more closely identify it that way. And that really got me into it. I was going to ask about the app thing because, yeah, nowadays you can take a photo of any plant and then mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. seconds it'll let you know everything you need to know about the plant. Does that exist for birds? So it exists if you have more, like if I take a picture with my camera, I'll take the app and take a picture of the screen on my camera mm. because it needs a closer look. Like if you see a bird on a fence and you try and take a picture of it, it won't usually be enough detail. Yeah, because you just upload the photo from your camera to your phone and then into the app. Mm -hmm. You can do that too. Yeah. So I use Seek and iNaturalist primarily. And Seek, they're both free and they're both like citizen science crowdsourced, which is amazing. Um, And Seek is usually good and it will often identify it at least onto the family. Um, And once you get the family, then it's easier to look it up in more traditional field guides. Do they gamify it at all in terms of giving you badges for yes. collecting birds? Yeah, I was wondering. That would be what would get me. Go back to the passport thing. <laughs> I mean, Foursquare used to do that exact model and ended up falling off, but people are into it. How well do you know your bird calls? Not as well. I'm not a sound person. Only the super distinct ones. Yeah, about the same. Like, What are your, so of the ones you know, what are your favorite three and what do they sound like? The Gila woodpecker. What's it sounds like a dog squeak toy. <laughs> Once you hear it and you key into it, you'll hear it all over the desert. I think we need to hear it, Veggie. I yeah, think we you are a better at. I'm setting you up for this. Just everybody knows a dog squeak toy. No, I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, yeah that's pretty that. good. Okay, what Almost, about, what's another one? Uh, what do we got? I mean, everybody loves the chickadee out there. Uh, most hikers know that one, and it's out there, and it's like. You basically hear, hey, cheeseburger, and it's cheeseburger. like. Cheeseburger. Cheeseburger. <laughs> I got the Hilo woodpecker here. Uh, what's another one? Hey, there's see, a, there's, there's a squeak toy. Yeah, that was pretty close, right? Yeah. Uh, well, sorry, what was the most, re- what was the cheeseburger one? Uh, Mountain chickadee. Yep. Um, Everybody knows the red-tailed hawk. That's the one oh, movies yeah. always use as eagles, but it's actually a red-tailed Once hawk. Once you realize the red-tailed hawk call, movies will never be the same because every time you see like a bald eagle, they put on the red. T- yeah, the chick- that's chickadee. Hey, Wait, where's the cheeseburger part? Chickadees have a number of calls. <laughs> um, 
And there's black cap chickadees and mountain chickadees, and they're often confused. What's the uh, what's this hawk sound like? Oh, it's the it's the. It's just like straight up, like if there was a rooster in the top of a tree, just letting out that belt. It's the the you probably think it's a bald eagle's call, but the red tail hawk. It is fierce, and you're walking through, and you'll hear it, and it's making those calls out there to scare off the rodents or something like that, so they can hunt them. And it, it's a, it's a nice one to walk by. Do you have it up there? Sex typing as fast as thumbs up. <laughs> have you heard yeah. that screech? Sounds like a cat hissing. <laughs> oh, it's like a mountain lion almost. Yeah. Like yeah. it's it's a scary call. All right, each of you pick one call to make the other person make oh, that no. you know they'll know. I'm not good at imitating sounds. <laughs> well, you're not yeah. picking for you. <laughs> mm. Can mm. you imitate an elk? Oh, not no. a bird, but I, I, I strongly am for this. Yeah. We accept. We'll take no. we'll take your best elk veggie. Have you ever woke up to an elk bugle before? No, what does it sound like, Veggie? Oh, you got to pull it up. I will not do it justice. You've heard if you've been on the Colorado Trail, you've heard. Oh, yeah. I guess it I'm on heckling, the Zach. Okay. You're are you You're on bugling. my side or against me? <laughs> you could say I'm familiar Who's with it, so do it. You know, I was always called tone deaf, and I actually got kicked out of chorus. So sound is not really my thing. <laughs> All right, that's, that's why I'm very, very like visual, and that's why I need the camera. Um, to get good at birds, because I'll hear them and I'll like know where to find them. But okay, well, I'll take this as a as a quick intermission between these trails because if we do too many back to back, they're going to start to blend. Um, so while we're on this tangent, I've started. Since I won't get an elk call, I will veer into something more uncomfortable. What is, and we'll go one by one, the best part about hiking with the other? We'll start with that. What is the best part about hiking with the other person? Uh, I can start with that one. Uh, getting to share an experience with somebody else. I We've done solo hiking, and uh, it's really nice to have that shared memory of a trail. Sometimes when you hike it all by yourself and you're going through these amazing places, you don't really have anybody else to bounce that off of. Uh, and so it's nice that we can be like, oh, man, remember this spot that we went through at that time? And yeah, it's it's really nice to have that together. Cute. I would say I agree <laughs> as well as we're really good at like feeling if one person's having an off day mm -hmm. or if one person's hurting more than the other and we'll kind of switch weight back and forth. And so if one of us has, you know, one of those odd injuries kind of flare up for a little, the other takes the weight for a few days or a day, and then we'll switch it back and forth. Like on the Hey Duke, at one point, I like, something went weird with my hip, and I just had a few too many liters of water. Those heavy water carries yeah. and sand walking through, yeah, there's... And things tweak i don't know i stepped wrong and my hip was hurting for a few days and so he took some weight like maybe three pounds for me yeah and then in the something. grand canyon when we were mm -hmm. hiking through that section i was staring at all the cliffside so much that i gave my neck like the worst kink i've ever had before yeah i couldn't stop staring at all the mountainsides and i couldn't move it at all the next day i woke up and i was like stuck i felt like i almost went to the doctor but then it was like I think I can make it through as I probably shouldn't have. And, uh, 
I had to she, take weight there. She took a lot of weight from me at that point. So I he couldn't move his neck. He was turning his whole body <laughs> to look for like three days in the Grand Canyon. Oh, man. It was really sad because I really wanted to look at all the hillsides. I'm like turning my whole body, you know, like shifting back to be able to see. But so. having that partner to like pass weight if you're like just not feeling it one day mm -hmm. is really amazing. So you mentioned shifting weight if somebody's having an off day physically, but if somebody's having an off day spiritually or emotionally do you guys have tactics to lift the other person up oh well yeah. we'll give each other space if we need to because you're with each other 24 7 um you're likely to get mad at each other at some point and it's typically to do with being tired and hungry and so you hike together say, we, 24 7 we no. typically don't actually we hike pretty close to each other, but I have a little bit of a faster pace than Veggie does, and we were both hikers beforehand, so it's really difficult to meet completely in the middle. We tend to try to go, she goes a little faster, I go a little slower when we are hiking together, and typically, though, I'm out in front. Um, Almost always. Typically out of sight, and I'll stop at, like, junctions and water sources mm -hmm. and within, like, the time span that we gave ourselves. Is that no, you go. I've been talking. I'm just curious, is the spacing almost intentional just so you guys can have that time to process your own thoughts? And uh, I mean, sometimes um, sometimes we have podcasts on, so we're just in our own heads doing our things. Um, other times we have been spending so much time together that we're like, like let's have our own little space. Um, I guess it's probably 50% of the time we're like next to each other chatting, yeah. like mostly in the mornings when we're first waking up. Or in the um, evenings. Or in the evenings when uh, when we're on trails like the GET, which we were just on, there's far more navigation involved. Um, what I'm referring to is more so like the PCT and AT sure. where you just don't have to really think about it. Um, on the GET where we're navigating together all the time, we're not separating out of eyesight that often. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, me and Fireball say that I'll call her my trail girlfriend, but when we hike together, we do the same thing where we don't hike together. Mm -hmm. And it's because she hikes faster than I do, just like you said you do. And for, for us to hike together means she's hiking slower than she wants and I'm hiking faster than I want. And neither of us are, neither of us are in the place we want to be. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like we're both less pleased than we should be to make it work which causes stress and that and sounds like what it is for you guys definitely and potentially injuries right and, yep. if i'm going like faster than my normal pace i find that you know i'll tweak something and same with him if he's going slower even he'll tweak something because he's trying to slow up or my I'm body's not doing up. what it wants to do naturally mm -hmm. yeah i have a i have a thought hmm. I'm gonna let you jump back into the next trail, mm -hmm. but I would like to cause chaos in between each trail like I just did. Chaos I think it's fun. Director of chaos. Well, on. it'll be like a commercial break. Do it. Well, I just did it. That was the oh, that okay. was the most admirable thing. Got it. But Got I'll it. do it again after. Whether it's a car camping trip, a bout of trail magic, or the summer road trip, a quality cooler and drinkware is essential. That's why we're thrilled to introduce our next sponsor, Arctic Outdoors. Arctic Outdoors makes products engineered for two things: performance and durability. And unlike other coolers on the market, Arctic's high-quality coolers and tumblers won't cost you an arm and a leg. Arctic's 52-quart ultralight hard cooler made the trip from Backpacker Radio's headquarters in Golden, Colorado, to Trailways in Damascus, Virginia, keeping our spindrifts, root beers, and blue ribbons perfectly chilled. As the name would imply, the ultralight cooler is 30% lighter compared to other premium hard-sided coolers, which means you can be the group's beverage hero without developing a hernia in the process. 
And compromising on weight doesn't mean you're compromising on insulation. With up to three inches of closed cell foam insulation, your ice will remain as ice for days. For more portable adventures, Arctic Outdoors soft pack coolers are the ticket. These are lightweight, durable, and ready to travel with you, keeping your drinks cold for up to 24 hours while avoiding the mess thanks to two inches of closed cell foam and puncture and tear resistant liner. Lastly, Arctic's drinkware keeps your blue ribbons cold or your morning coffee hot for the long haul, utilizing double wall vacuum insulation. The BPR team rocked Arctic tumblers throughout the muggy afternoons of Southern Appalachia, enjoying refreshingly cold beverages along the way. Head to arcticoutdoors.com to get your premium coolers and insulated drinkware at a fraction of the price of the competition today. Okay, so we just covered CDT. You guys did your own versions of it. Uh, we did the Pacific Northwest Trail. We, is there anything else on the Hey Duke that you wanted to touch on? No. no. Okay. Don't do it. It was the longest. <laughs> Sorry. Three, it was the longest karma went between showers. He oh didn't, yeah, that's didn't true. Didn't beat my record though. We uh, cashed uh, for multiple towns. I think it was yep. three different towns we skipped, and. Uh, so it was 23 days 21. for me. 21? Oh, it was exactly three weeks. Yes. <laughs> was well, you said that. didn't beat your record. What's your record? Oh, Take yeah. a guess. This is a fun game. Mine's 17, so I'm already proud of you. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go 42. Close. No way. What is it? 48. You beast. <laughs> I wanted to do 50, but I had to get on an airplane, Damn and I was it. afraid they wouldn't let me on my expensive flight. Yeah. That's oh, a real concern. Yeah. Where were you that you got 48 days? <laughs> I was on that Knowles course in New Zealand. Mm. Really? Yeah. I mean, I did a cold plunge into a glacial melt stream, but there was no soap involved. Fair. So that doesn't count. Were yeah. other people showering? Did they no. have showers? Did no. everyone want a full 48? Pretty much. Oh, One girl brought shampoo and conditioner. And I didn't respect it. Could, no, I feel like Knowles wouldn't. Could you smell yourself by the end of it? It kind of went away for the most part. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Could you smell others? Only and really only their farts. Fair. You know? Or their soap or something like that, huh? Well, there is no soap. Well, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. The one girl that washed her hair in the glacial melt water. Oh, I could smell her shampoo. Mm. It's interesting because yeah, like body odor... The olfactory sense works that it detects change. Like if you're slowly just getting more stinky, you're you're you don't perceive that. Yeah. But others do. <laughs> well, I would also say this goes for showering too. I am a infrequent hair washer and I stand by this. The reason why people's hair get greasy so much is because they wash it too often. Like people who wash their hair and shampoo their hair every day, yeah. their hair gets greasy mm. way faster than if you wash it every week. Sure, but if you sat in the sauna, your head would smell like a dumpster fire. But hear me out here. It's because your body doesn't know how to naturally regulate those oils because it's overproducing to make up for what you're stripping. When you're not it sounds, showering- It sounds cute in theory. You can't cut me off before I'm even done with my okay, thought. I, I agree, agree with her. When, you, when you're not showering for, for example, 48 days, like your body is like think about like back before there was deodorant right like people just didn't have deodorant they never put it on if you're not showering for that long your body's learning to naturally regulate the oils where you're not going to get smelly because you're not stripping yourself of that more frequently than you should be i think it i think it starts to at a point regulate itself yeah i don't agree with apparently the consensus in the room because I sent home clothes from the AT where I didn't smell anything and my parents were like, this smells like you have to burn this. Yeah, but you probably showered every week. Still less frequent than I ever showered before. But you probably didn't get over the crux. Where's the crux? I don't know. I'm not like a scientist, but I would assume at some point your body starts to naturally regulate that stuff where you stop producing the smelly bits. 
more than you would when you're going from everyday showers to once a week showers as you would when you go from regular life to trail life. Once you're like out there, out there. So when you shower less frequently, you smell worse. But if you shower less frequently than that, you if start you're to coming, smell better. If you're coming from like a nine to five desk job where you're showering every morning and night, for example, and you go on the AT and you shower once a week, your body's still going to be overproducing in that overproduction phase where you're going to start smelling more between those showers. But once your showers are infrequent enough, your body's going to slow down and it's not going to overproduce as much and you're not going to get that stinky. Yeah, I think that is probably dumb. I think as long as you're processing Cheetos and Mountain Dew, your body's going to be spitting out toxins because you're inputting toxins. But agree to disagree. Podcast at thetrek.co and voicemail link in our Instagram bio. I know there are people that are going to back me up on this. Yeah. I'll back you up on Whether that. or not you think that my voice sounds annoying in this podcast, I know <laughs> there are people that are going to back me up on this. It doesn't make it right. You had people backing you up saying that granola wasn't cereal, which is just by the definition wrong. So then what makes a person right if not other people agreeing? And, that's not a, how it works. That's not how it's being a, something right that's works. subjective to opinion. What? No, this is Is this fact you, or not fact? You could measure then you could look it you up. Could measure, then look it up. If it's fact versus not fact. I think we're derailing the conversation. We here. absolutely yeah. are. Because Calm you don't want to admit. <laughs> Anyways, this okay. was really fun to witness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, but so you guys agree. I, yeah. I agree with you. Yes. Except on the AT. Yeah, the, the AT is its own funk producer. That's the stinkiest trail the of them all, no okay. matter yeah, what. Because you're sweating more, and that's what produces the odor. Case Shut closed. Up. Case closed. You're <laughs> Next wrong. trail. You're wrong. Have you been to Europe before? Yeah. The have you? The BO is intense out I'm there. I'm Zach Davis. I studied abroad in London. <laughs> Is that what's happening now? <laughs> Sean's is drunk. No, I'm not. Uh, okay, so after the Camino, we do the third version of Camino de Santiago. We've been over that. Um, and then you do the Oregon Coast Trail, southbound, which is the traditional route for that. Mm -hmm. What put that on your radar and what was what made that the next trail of choice? Timing. It was the most logical thing that we could drive to easily. Yeah, it wasn't too far south from your mom up in um, Washington. and Not too far north of your dad in California. Yep, we also had the van, and we were trying to kind of get ourselves out there. And we started the trail without the van. We parked it at a friend's house. And pretty quickly, we kind of wanted the van with us. And so that was the first time we kind of self-supported ourselves. Uh, and we ended up using the public transit um, along the Oregon coast, which is really, really good. And we would park the van and then take the bus away and we would hike to it or mm. do the reverse. And we kind of ended up yo-yoing the second half of it and skipping the road walks of the Oregon coast. You're walking right on the 101. And since we drove it probably six times in the van going back and forth doing the uh, self-supporting, we ended up basically making the same miles. It was, it was, was within the, half a mile. Within I half a GPS mile. GPSed it on Gaia. But just yo-yoing those sections yeah. that we had to, um, man, yeah. Does the public transit follow it pretty well? Like if someone were to want to section it? Two thirds of the way, yes. The southern quarter to southern third is a lot harder. Mm -hmm. It's there, but it's easier with a vehicle. It is very difficult to figure out those transit routes, too. We were looking online and trying to find out how they were going, and it was hard to do. Veggie is a master researcher, and she figured it out. Uh, it just took about an hour every night to figure it yeah. out. Mm -hmm. What makes it hard? It's just not all in one place, and then you're linking. Like Each county has their own schedules. 
And so sometimes you would cross counties or cross lines and then have to juggle two buses that weren't running super regularly. And then you're also basing those bus times on tide schedules. So you're having to read because certain places you can't cross or follow because of the tide. And so if the tide is in, it's a lot harder. And so you were, we were timing not only the bus schedules, but we were timing when the tide was out the furthest. Mm-hmm. Is it that close to the ocean that if the tide comes in, the bus can't run? No, not the oh. bus, but you're walking. So there were certain places that you literally couldn't walk past because the tide would come in too far. The bus had bridges and things like that to the get over. The bus was on a road. Buses don't drive on sand. Are we going to continue? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just reined me in. <laughs> um, so I did the first, the northernmost 100 miles of that trail. Mm-hmm. And I've heard it gets a little bit more remote and challenging mm-hmm. in certain aspects south of there. Walk me through the last 75% of that trail. Well, some of those, like, where you go up from the beach onto the headlands and whatnot, sometimes the in or the outs were hard, and it was hard to find those trails. Um, so we didn't have a GPS track at that time either. No, we made our own while we, we were out own. there, yeah. But, um, um, yeah, you would walk in, you go by a couple of private houses, and you would just kind of need to know or see this little flag that would be there, and then you walk up these, like, shoots that go in between some houses, and you end up in town. yeah. Um, I did it in 2019 and I had a beta version of the gut hook route far out, whatever. Um, and even that was sketchy. I don't even think they did the full version of that. So yeah, that's been a challenge of it. I, I'm to my knowledge, I think it's better today, mm-hmm. Okay. but yeah, I'm curious to know what this like in 2017. Yeah. Because we had the van, um, anytime we were kind of questioning the area, we would try to drive to those spots that we might come out of the trail um and we would kind of see that road that we might be walking into town on so we were able to do a little bit of reconnaissance driving through um but otherwise it was just kind of walking up and hoping you're not trespassing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. did you enjoy i mean i guess conceptually compare the southern and northern halves of the trail because the northern half in my experience was you're going through a lot of towns can be Mm -hmm. very touristy at times Mm -hmm. um which Similar to the Camino, like if that's the thing that you're after, it can be a benefit. Um, but to my understanding, I think we got off at Pacific City. Once you get south of there, it gets yep. the resupply gets more challenging. It's a little bit more remote. So, yeah, what is the experience after that point? Well, that was the benefit to having the van. So we were essentially slackpacking ourselves yeah. the rest of the way. And so we could just go to any grocery store we needed to to resupply. Um, but it did get more remote. There were more long beach stretches. And if the tide was in, you were up on the higher sand that's a lot harder to walk in Mm -hmm. um and so sometimes we had to do that based on the bus schedule but we would have to look at the terrain um and there was some there was a blog post there was like a blog we were following for descriptions mm. of like which sections you needed low she tide. She wrote a day hiking book, I think, and yeah, had the blog. but we never got the day yeah. hiking book. No, we she, just went off her blog. She gave all the information on the blog, so. I think I was Sorry. using the same resource yeah. as well. That was like the de facto resource for yeah. uh-huh. trail hikers. Uh, How does the scenery change? More dunes, um, less sea stacks, uh, a lot more agates. Oh yeah, we found so many agates in this uh, southern yep. section. Mm. Um, For those who don't know, what's an agate? It's a beautiful rock. It's like kind of smooth, almost translucent rock. Um, it's kind of, uh, it's not completely clear. It's more milky than clear. But if you hold it up to the sun, you can wiggle your finger behind it, and you should be able to see your finger, but you can't scratch it. So if you take your nail and you try to make a mark on it, 
If it makes no mark, it's an agate. If it makes a mark, it's a sugar stone. Hmm. Yeah. If you could go back and rehike either the northern or the southern half, what would you pick? With the van or without the van? Uh, let's say with the van. Um, I would think probably. I'd say the central. Yeah, central was really cool. It was a mix of both. You got a few of the like, few touristy towns, but there was more free van camping, mm. or at least stealthier options for us. The northern section, because it was touristy, it was harder to stealth camp in the van. Mm. My buddy, um, Poppy Chulo, um, Ed Meeson, he's not with us anymore, but he said uh, to think of the OCT as Hawaii. It's not exactly a through hike like the traditional ones. Uh, you're very much kind of a tourist going through. And so if you thought of it like uh, Hawaii, it, you'd have a good time. We're jumping the timeline. Where where did I see the Kalalula Trail? That was Karma Oh, that was only. me. That was, that was uh, in 2014, February 2014. We're going all over the timeline, but we've talked about this on the podcast in the past. It's been a long time. Mm -hmm. So refresh our memory on that one. I think this is the Kauai Trail, right? Yeah. So Kauai is a really cool island. It's uh, one of the last islands of the Hawaii chain. And the roads on Kauai do not Con it makes a loop around, but it doesn't connect. It's a horseshoe. So the Kaolau Trail is that empty portion of the horseshoe. So there's no roads. It's remote. It's old Hawaii. And uh, so you get out to it. And I think it's only 11 miles out to this private beach and then 11 miles back. But you're in that 11 miles. I believe you go over like 11 up and down. It's like a thousand foot climb, thousand foot down. And then you end up at this beach at the end of it. It's totally private. There's a few other hikers out there and it is the most picturesque place ever. And most people have probably seen the amazing cliffside photos of it. It's just Jurassic Park, I believe, was filmed out there. And it's just like unbelievable. And yeah. so if you get a chance to do it, I recommend it. And yeah. Even for people with exposure issues. There's a lot of exposure, yes. Um, if it's raining, it is incredibly dangerous um, because it gets muddy and you could slick, slip off in some areas if you're being silly and drop like 500 to 1,000 feet into the ocean. Mm. Yeah. I know when I think of Hawaii hikes, like a lot of the ones that get publicized on social media aren't necessarily legal to hike anymore in hawaii mm. is this one like a fully like you need chill? to get a permit yeah um, okay. you have uh, you can easily go into the permit office there in Kauai. but it's um, not one of those places they've closed off and said don't hike this anymore nope not yet okay, cool. it, it's a, one of the big tourist attractions on Kauai. and when i flew out there because i was training for the pct and i didn't really know how to train for it I decided I wasn't going to really take public transit. So I got off the airport and walked into town and then uh, went into the city hall and got the permits. And Kauai is really cool because you can get camping on beach permits also when you're there. So I saved a boatload of money not going to hotels, just like sleeping on the beaches and stuff like that. You do have to have that permit hanging on your tent. Don't try to sneak in there. They check. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I basically then, I took a bus through a, one of the really sketchiest spots, and then I walked the rest of the way to the trail up a road. And people were trying to give me hitches and stuff like that, but I had never been on a trail before, so accepting a hitchhike was a little scary for me at the time. So I walked the trail, then walked the Kaolau Trail and back. And yeah, it's 
it's a fun one. Is the permit process tricky at all? Like, are no. you reliant on a lottery or anything? It may be harder now because it is a popular trail. This was back in 2014. So now you may have to do a wait list or something online. Um, at the time, it was really simple. I just got the permit. I didn't have to wait or pick any dates. It was just like, it was available for me at that time. Um, I saw this movie called The Perfect Get uh, Getaway. Uh, it's kind of like a... A thriller kind of a movie and this like honeymoon couple went out on that trail and one of the notes in it was get more than three days uh, like the guide person was like hey oh you got three days big mistake and so i made sure i got plenty of nights out there to like make it worth it hmm. okay 2017 we're now to the wonderland trail We've talked about this a lot on the podcast so if there's not any standout stories we can the rangers fear-mongered us oh, the so rangers. hard yeah it had just way? snowed, and they saw our sandals. We, Are you bedrock hikers? What are you hiking in? Tevas. Since the PNT. Tevas or Tevas? I don't know. I've always been heard Tevas. Cool. Cookie Monster harangued me for calling them Tevas. I like the word harangued. What month is it that you're hiking this? September? End of September. It had just snowed, though, and they were trying to like tell us how much snow there was, and we were like, well, like... Is it really that much snow? It, it probably has been melting for two days now. So how did the fear mongering compare to the experience? I mean, the fine. experience it was great. I would say be careful with your knees on that one. There's a lot of up and down. And uh, it surprised us on uh, for the amount of miles of trail. It just surprised us at kind of how difficult it actually was. That was my experience too. Yeah. It, was, mm -hmm. yeah, it reminded me a little bit of the AT, just mm -hmm. in terms Us of the too. amount of up and down. Yeah. 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 Would you recommend September to listeners of the podcast? Sure. Our friend had the permit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she just uh, was looking for some people to jump on board. Uh, so I'm not actually positive when the best time would be to go out there. Yeah. I, To my understanding, Washington is the nicest, like mid- july through washington or through washington through august which is mm -hmm. when i did it and even with that we had one day that was torrential downpours but the rest of it was just beautiful we had uh most of the time we had some clouds uh but we got a couple of days in there that just opened up and we had great views mm -hmm. um so we had decent weather i don't think we yeah we got stormed on one time a little bit of snow in september not that much yeah it was just a little bit Next, we have the low to high route. What's that? It's a Brett Tucker route. Um, it is what's from a Brett Tucker. Brett <laughs> Blister Brett? Free. Um, it's he's, a guy who does routes, and he's pretty good at it. Um, so he's done. He did the lowest to highest. He did the GET, the Grand Enchantment Trail. He's got uh, a lot in the Southwest, uh, like the Mogollon Rim. Um, I think the Northern New Mexico. Route Northern New Mexico. Yeah, uh, the Sky Island Trail. Um, a lot of his are on our list to do right now. He, um, but He has a good route-making style. The lowest to highest is not like a lot of his other routes. It goes from Badwater Basin in Death Valley, the lowest point in the U.S., negative 200-something feet, and then it hikes to Whitney, Mount Whitney. Um, I think it's within 130 miles, and then you end up at 14,505 in between just out of Badwater Basin. So within your first like 40 miles, you hike over Telescope Peak, which is like an 11,000 foot 
mountain. 11.3, I believe. Nice. But because you come out of Badwater Basin, you're negative 200. And that is the tallest climb you could do in the U.S., hmm. 11,000 feet vert up a mountain. There's no other one in in the Most of it doesn't have a states. trail either. You're what just mileage kinda... are you going over to get to that? Uh, I, okay, so I think you're like mile yeah. 10, and no. then you start going over Telescope Peak. Because or, or, it that was what you're six asking? miles across Badwater Basin. And then we went from the western end halfway up Telescope mm-hmm. in a short but very steep day. And then we went up and over Telescope the third day. We took our time going up Telescope Peak just like because you're almost – it's so steep in the short amount of time. You're almost crawling up it. Not quite. And we were a little off the route in that section. We were. But there were so many pinyon pine cones on the ground. We were just eating – uh, pine nuts all the way up this mountain. Hmm. So as we were getting depleted in energy, we'd just eat some wild nuts and then like make our way up. It was a really fun climb because of it. Did you ever get the metallic-y taste in your mouth? Apparently, if you eat too many pine nuts, that is a common side effect. I guess it? we didn't quite guess we get didn't that many. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if you're eating them fresh off the, uh, the bush or whatever, you don't encounter that. What's the hottest temperature that you experienced in the basin? We did um, it at night. It was 97 degrees when we left. I think it was like... It was in October, early October. Early, mid-October. And uh, yeah, we got dropped off. It was like 9 p.m. Um, Bishop Hostel hooked us up with a ride out there and helped us cache water in um, Death Valley or just outside Death Valley, I guess. And mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, they dropped us off. Um, thank you, Mac. Degrees. And then we hiked across the basin it was like still in the 90s and surprisingly in the middle of this like salt field um it was muddy and we were like what the heck we're walking through this salty mud to get through and uh yeah you would think like people that don't hike i've done the pct people who don't hike think that because i've done 700 miles of desert like you know the desert right Mm -hmm. but then i still have questions for you guys that are like i don't know the desert at all when you're hiking at night doing this, are you still having to worry about rattlesnakes? Like, because I assume because it's cooler, maybe they'll come out because it's cooler. But is this something where while you're night hiking, you have to be looking out for the wildlife around you? Or are you just good to go? Sun's, sun's down, we're good. In this specific spot in Badwater Basin, I was not worried about rattlesnakes. It's but, like such a salty yeah. basin. There's rattlesnakes wouldn't be living out there. They dry out. So in that case... We weren't not there about, like tarantulas but scorpions scorp- we woke up with a scorpion next to us <sighs> we, yeah we walked yeah. all the way across the base and found like the first bushes that we saw and we decided we'd camp next to that and cowboy we, camp uh, yeah, yeah we, we still did. cowboy camped we a lot that still year cowboy this was the that year time. that actually made us get a bug net yeah um <laughs> because what the happened? scorpion that was that was the well we had a scorpion and spider incident on the hey duke yeah. But this was like, I think, the third scorpion incident yeah. that was like a little too close for comfort. Sure. Can we hear both? Um, yeah. So, on the low to high, since we're still on that one, uh, we basically woke up and our buddy Judd, who was out there, he moved his shoe and there was the scorpion. And it was like a big one. It was like probably two inches long and it was like right by the shoe. So, we all kind of dumped out our, or he dumped out his shoes. We had sandals and, uh, we took a couple pictures of it and like appreciated it from afar and like realized, whoa, that was uh, really close to where we were sleeping. And the Hey Duke. We, okay, so it was this perfect little sandy bench 
like Indian Spring or something like that. Like near this terribly alkaline water that we couldn't drink. But there was a three quarter mile like scramble out of this canyon and it was nearing dark. And we were like, well, let's camp here so we don't get caught on this scramble in the middle of like as it's dark. It was like the most gorgeous oasis. I don't know if there's ever been a more beautiful campsite. And so we set up, yeah. we just throw out the little pla- uh, tie back and then our like bedrolls on it. And we're sitting there and the sun's starting to go down. It's getting dark. And all of a sudden we're like, ah, we probably need some headlamps. So we pull out on our headlamps and we turn it on and we look over and we see like the biggest glowing eyes that like we've ever seen of a spider. And we're like, what the heck is this? And so we investigate. It's a spider. And, and then we see the sea of spiders. Then we look around at all the other like bushes yeah. around and they all had the same size, multiple eyes in all of them. And we're like, oh, man, we were still going to sleep there. We we're like, that's cool. That's cool. Then uh, <laughs> one of the spiders started like coming towards us and we're like, oh, dude. So I walked over and I grabbed a rock like it was near us and I picked it up to smush it because it wasn't like deterred from us. And when I picked up the rock, there was a spider underneath it. No, it was a scorpion. No, it, and it, it stri- zombied out of the ground. <laughs> like a zombie coming it out of a terrifying. grave. Just like, and we were like, huh, nope. And that's when we packed up our bedroll and decided to do the three quarters mile up. No, we, we didn't got like 300 all. feet up and found a ledge that had no spiders and we flipped like all of the surrounding rocks. <laughs> yeah, we were like, you <laughs> went from being cool with insects to being paranoid. Totally. <laughs> Two nights scrambling out yeah, of a canyon. Yeah, right. I hate, I don't know like what part of that gave me chills. I knew there was going to be something under that rock. I hated that. <laughs> there was a second scorpion yeah, though too the, in there somewhere. I can't uh, remember exactly It was where. like within all the spiders or something like that. Ooh, but man, it yeah. was the worst. Have you heard any stories of a hiker being stung by a scorpion yes yeah yeah, yeah but... maverick has oh maverick got stung by yeah. a scorpion oh dang what was his report on that uh it hurt for a while and then he was good after a few hours okay oh damn his dad got we were hanging out yeah. with him too uh we were just barbecuing with maverick and his dad and all of a sudden that night his dad walking inside thought that it was a leaf on the ground inside of his house in arizona and he just reached down picked it up and it was a scorpion and stung him <laughs> and really scorpions are only super dangerous to babies and older people. And so we, he had I mean, to be watched or somebody good. with uh, like a pre existing yeah, condition. Yeah. Oh, I've heard the longer they go without stinging, the more potent the sting is. Ooh. Because it has time like to poison like poison blue balls. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where I heard this fact. So, like, don't take it. Yeah, sure. For sure. <laughs> I saw a scorpion when I was in Cambodia. Um, we were just like walking down this village and these kids were screaming because they saw it and this old, old, old lady with her cane came out, looked at it and like whacked it with her cane and just went back inside. It was the most badass thing I ever saw. That's awesome. Um, Cool. If you're for the number of hiker interactions with scorpions, I don't hear that many stories of something going wrong because I saw plenty of them on the PCT. Did you? Mm Mm-hmm. It, it must any. be a seasonal thing because mm-hmm. we were talking about this before we hit record that I didn't see any rattlesnakes, but I saw lots of scorpions, tarantulas. I saw well, it took t- me 600 miles to see a rattlesnake. Mm. But I also am oblivious and aloof. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Cool. Uh, so what else from the low to high route? Well, do you recall your temperature extremes? You said that you night hiked the basin, so it didn't get that hot. Yeah, I think it was Saline Valley got up to like almost 100 degrees or something like that as we were hiking through. Really um, hot in Pinament. We didn't have a temperature gauge at that point. Mm-mm. So we weren't exactly sure. I know we night hiked across one valley. I think it was Saline Valley. Morning night hiked. We got up at like four 
And oh, and going. it was freezing that morning, actually. When we, were we were walking in puffies. Yeah. Uh, so going, honestly, lowest to highest, it can be the lowest temperatures or the highest as well, being in the desert. And one morning we were completely freezing because of underestimating it. Um, and then going to Whitney in October can be a real roll of the dice. Like we got hit with a snowstorm yep. in mid to late September. So I know mm -hmm. that the probability of something going wrong at that time of the year is decent. Yep. It's kind of a roll of the dice. The trail being only 130 miles is kind of helpful in that, that you can look into a 10-day forecast and mm -hmm. see what might be coming. Um, you do have to go into the ranger station ahead of time and get your permits to go up Whitney. It's not like the PCT where you go up the backside and can just make it. Um, so you have to wait an extra day because of that. So you go and get your permits, and then you can go up the next day. Um, is it – because I know the Whitney permit – is competitive also is it easier to get in october just because of the weather being so inclement yeah so the trick with yeah. that is you show up to the office in the morning and they will typically have something um and you got to be like the first person in line because there's other people that will be there too got it yeah. there were two groups looking for cancellation permits on the day we went mm -hmm. us being one group of three and they had permits for all of us nice but the first roll of the dice yeah, the first group was really, really um, stressed towards the ranger first thing in the morning, and we were sitting back really, really chill, and the ranger was very happy to help us. So be good to your rangers. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Anything worth touching on about the Whitney Summit? Um, it was it kicked your butt a little bit. It yeah. did kick my butt. So, well, I had gotten the flu the day before we started. One of the <laughs> Yeah, one so of the recommendations did. on the map set is don't do this when you have the flu, <laughs> and she had the flu. I was like a day recovering, but I definitely yeah. had a bottle of Dayquil and a bottle of Nightquil with mm. me the whole time. That'll make it fun. It yeah. was real fun. I had it like the week prior and gave it to her, and she basically yeah. toughed through it and, yeah, was a trooper, but altitude was kicking her butt. Me, when I think, yeah, a little sure. bit more because of it. Mm -hmm. Love. Um, next, we got the AT Sobo. Done the AT quite a bit, both on this podcast and in general. Um, just quickly, is there anything that you want to compare Nobo versus Sobo? Well, I said I'd do it again if we went Sobo and if we did the knife sedge. Mm -hmm. And he said, cool, I like knife sedges. So yeah. that and was kind of why we did that one. Yeah, and because uh, I planned on doing the AT as the triple crown in three years yeah. type of a deal, I would say wait until you're ready to do it. Because Were you we, hungry for the AT at that point? I was hungry for the AT at that point. I felt like I wanted to see it, and I got other people's perceptions of the trail out of my mind. And I went out there and had such a great time as a West Coast boy, never hiking on the East Coast. I thought it was the most fun. And uh, I remembered seeing a few people that were out there just triple crown hunting and they were not having fun. Mm -hmm. and, they were miserable. Which actually made us have a little bit more fun. Yeah. That's exactly how it was for me. Do you remember when I got back from the PCT and you were asking that? Like, when are you going to do the AT? And I was like, oh. fuck the AT. I never want to do that, da-da-da. Yeah. And then once I wanted to do it, it was like, yep. yeah, I, I totally agree. Wait till you want to. Because mm -hmm. if you don't want to, it doesn't mean you'll never want to. Yeah, exactly. But give yourself enough time away and you'll want to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Probably good advice for any trail, right? Yeah. Like yeah. if you're just doing something to do something, there's a high probability that something's not going to go right. But definitely. it's so easy to get caught up in that. Oh, for mm -hmm. sure. Definitely. 
Uh, AZT talked a lot about that on the podcast. Anything you want to highlight before we get to rare subjects? We got like a crazy storm. We started super early and Tucson, I think, was in a state of emergency at some point. Yep. It uh, snowed. Just and... outside of Tucson, south of it, um, it got about a foot of snow uh, in southern Arizona. Tucson went into a state of emergency. Phoenix went into a state of emergency. And we were post-holing through this snow. And on the AZT, especially in the southern portion, there's a lot of bike trails. So there's big switchbacks going. And you can't exactly just charge through those, like uh, cutting off those switchbacks while post-holing in Arizona because there are so many cactuses and you don't see them. And so we made a couple mistakes. Uh, I kicked just, a yucca. We kicked a couple cactuses and yuccas uh, while post-holing in I Arizona. I pulled the tip out of my toe a day later. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, so we just had a different AZT experience because of the snow. Mm-hmm. It was just anything over, I think, 5,000 feet after that we had, were post-holing. Yeah, the first time I did it, I went super fast and mm-hmm. kind of went almost no cook towards the second half of it. And it and then when we did it, it was slower and with snow. And it was just a completely different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Taught a few people how to hike and navigate in the snow. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. So Other I'm excited that, for this yeah. next one, the Scottish National Trail. Oh, oh yeah. dude. As are you. The, that yeah. Is lit up. Love <laughs> it. Such a good trail. Yeah. Um, so that one started south of Kirk Yethom or something like that. Technically started there. We actually just went to the border. Yeah. So it why starts. Why you start at the border? Yeah. So it starts what like only ten or two and a half miles at a pub. Oh, two and a half miles border. from the border. Oh, that's yeah. it. Oh, wow, that's really close. Yeah, How so long is the trail? About five hundred and. 530, 550, yeah. I can't remember exactly. I have to look at my notebook. So the popular Scottish Trail is the West Highland Way. Why'd you pick this one? Because it's not the popular one. And this is the trail that goes from the south of Scotland all the way to the north. So Uh you walk, it's kind of like our through hikes. Yeah, right. You go from the southern border to the northern. And you can't go any further because Scotland ends at Cape Wrath there. And it's just ocean then. And so... Uh, yeah, that was my first international trail mm-hmm. and it was a really great experience. There's kind of two different vibes. So like the southern section, you know, where you kind of go from the border up to Edinburgh and then over to Glasgow and you actually are on the West Highland Way for the first 12 miles of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a little bit more urban and you're kind of a little bit more in the B&B territory or like finding a little group of trees which is a whole different ballgame. And then the rest of it after you get off the West Highland Way is a lot more campable and a lot more remote and a lot more boggy. The Scottish Highlands, so it's like Braveheart. You're just out there. And yeah, we definitely screamed freedom from the top of the hills. <laughs> he screamed. Yeah. I had never seen Braveheart she before. Had you never it. seen Braveheart? She, I no, did she, afterwards. Okay. We finished the trail and in our final B&B. Uh, we found a DVD. We found, they had a DVD yeah. of Braveheart and so we watched it. And, yeah. Her I'm, life was I'm forever cool. changed. Um, did you get a feel for how the Scottish feel about that movie? <laughs> yes. Yeah. What, I was also Googling the accuracy of it the entire time yeah, I was watching it. I don't want to know the answer to that. I know Hollywood bastardizes everything <laughs> yeah well what, so what is the scottish take on braveheart i mean i think for the most part it's a good movie but they understand that it is not at all historically accurate yeah sure so like they the let patriot. it go yeah, yeah.
what's cool about it too, just before you ask another question, mm. is there's this wide network of trails over there and you have the right to roam. And so oh, yeah. what we discovered the right to roam meant was don't be an asshole, but you can walk right into some farmer's field and be nice and walk along the fence so you're not disturbing their livestock. If the gates are open, leave them open. If the gates are closed, close them back up. Um, you know, don't camp right next to somebody's house, but you could camp outside of their view, view of their house in some trees. Um, and you can really just, you have the right to wander through. And there's not quite that private property sense where, you know, we've walked by signs in the deserts that, you know, we'll read them and it'd be like, if you can read this sign, you're in our sights and it's like a target. We don't waste bullets. Yeah. Or like those like kind of yeah. things. And so the people are more like, they'll just wave at you and say hi and you'll walk on through. And it's totally normal because they don't have as much like uh, public land, I guess. Um, the right to roam is just uh, a known thing. And uh, it's basically don't be a douche. And you can just go through people's property, connect to the trail that you're heading to. These are all ancient trails that go through these properties. So when the people bought them, they know that there's a path that goes through it. Mm. Um, and yeah, if you have a dog, keep it on a leash because that's the only time that you will really anger one of those ranchers. Makes sense. Yeah. So, Mandy, your eyes lit up when I asked you about this trail. Give me the sell on why someone should do this. It's amazing. I would also say, like why we love the CDT for the choose your own adventure aspect, the Scottish National Trail is really like using parts of a ton of routes that are pre-existing. And so you end up doing like, you know, half of this trail and then you get on another one where it joins up and you can, if you look at the map ahead of time, make different routes. You don't have to follow that. You can float some of the canals in a boat if you want to, mm -hmm. or get a kayak, or you can say, hmm, I'm going to climb these Munros, which are their, I think, 4,000 4, foot, foot mountains. Peaks. Yeah. Um, you can add those in. You can traverse different ways, or you can like, no, I don't want to go over to this lock. I want to go to this lock. And you can just pick a different route and make your own way. And so that's, I think we want to go back and pick different routes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did yeah. you encounter encounter a lot of other people out through hiking the trail no we got chased down by one guy at some point following our instagram posts yeah we we tagged yeah, the, the or scottish, hashtag national, scottish trail. national trail and then uh yeah he was chasing us down for the whole trail and caught us uh at the the last like day we 30 miles from the end or yeah, 20 miles from the end. i remember end. waking up that morning and coming out of the tent and this hiker was walking up and he was like hey Hey, and obviously hadn't seen a hiker in a while. And we're like, oh, what's going on? He yeah. was hiking it too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You remember his name? Yeah. Impala. Impala. Yeah. Yeah. How often are you able to get to town? Frequently. I think our biggest stretch was four days. Yeah. Maybe five, but I think it was four. And like the Airbnbs, the breakfasts were really good uh, when you get those. And if you eat meat. If you eat meat. And, uh, the haggis flavored chips are vegan and are incredibly delicious. Mm -hmm. And I really want to just go back to Scotland for the haggis flavored chips. So you guys are both vegan? Yes. Has that been true for the majority of your adult lives? When did that start? For veggie, it's been true for... 17 pretty, years? Yeah. For me, it yeah. started in 2020. Uh, I went vegan. I'm guessing that's the origin of the trail name? Yep. Yeah. Just walk through, or do you ever encounter challenges, especially because you mentioned a couple times internationally? I know in Europe, meat is much more ingrained in the culture and they might not have as good of vegan options. What do you do when you encounter situations where it's difficult to find vegan fare? 
Northern Spain was harder than Scotland. Um, and there I actually carried a five pound jar of peanut butter with me because I could find bread and jam everywhere, but they laughed at me when I asked for peanut butter. Hmm. Um, and so I just ate the five pounds. I like spread it out over the month I was out there each time. And I think I brought protein powder too, to add into juice. And that helped a lot. But every, like every time I could find a grocery store in Spain, I could find enough vegan options. Um, Scotland, we looked it up a little bit more online first. And yeah. we had a buddy that worked with us in Vail. And so we asked him like, hey, if we see like a spar, what are we going to find? And he'd be like, oh, and he'd literally walk around one of them with a phone and show us like the average spar. Google Maps works really well yeah. for the Scottish National Trail too. Uh, you mm -hmm. can go onto Street View and see the buildings you're going up to. You can go into some of these establishments. That's how we figured out where to get canister fuel. We went onto Google Maps. We went into the Street View. We went into the stores, photos, and then we basically walked the aisles virtually until we saw those like MSR little canisters of fuel. And we're like, ah, there, that's a convenient store. We uh, also emailed MSR and they and gave us a list of places where their products were sold. Where their that's distributors were. That was really helpful. Yeah. They were really nice about that. Yeah. What about the restaurants? Is it difficult to find anything vegan friendly? That's actually how we save the most money on trail is we hit a grocery store and make sure our hotel has a microwave. Because you can almost find vegan frozen food most places. And so mm -hmm. we'll just, you know, like get two packs of veggie burgers or like any kind of vegan frozen food. Um, yeah, bag of potatoes and some yeah. olive oil and some other stuff. And make we call ahead of time to make sure that the hotels have a microwave. And then we, that's really the main thing that we do as vegans is we hardly ever eat out at restaurants because mm -hmm. they don't give us enough calories that we need. And uh, so instead we get the hotel room, go into a grocery store, buy as much food as we can possibly eat. And then almost every two hours we just like eat and we yeah. sit in our underwear basically the whole time. <laughs> so what's your typical grocery store vegan in town splurge meal or snack or combination well if they have pints of vegan ice cream yeah. we uh, will each annihilate one oh, is ben yeah. and jerry's the go-to that's typically that what oh yeah they, they, they have a vegan yeah. one yeah that's have... typically the go-to because that's normally what the stores have but there's um some other really good ones like that the cashew milk one is really good mm -hmm. yeah question for you you went vegan in 2020 yeah out of these options which one was it is it that veggie is talking you into it from all of her years of experience. Don't shake your head yet. I'm not done with my <laughs> options. She's adamant against this. Is it B, living together in a van and doing all these things together, it's just more difficult to cook two separate meals than to just do the same thing? Or is it C, you like fully embrace the vegan lifestyle and you figure out like this is me now? Or D, other? It's a little bit of B and C and then D. Um, really... Um, a lot of the time, I guess I was only maybe eating meat a couple times a week at that point um, after we've been together for a while. And uh, then COVID hit and I got it and I lost my sense of smell. And when I couldn't smell rotisserie chicken in Costco anymore, I just didn't crave meat anymore. And that was really my one big holdout was that Costco rotisserie chicken. It's like two bucks or something insane. Yeah, it's like $5, $4.99. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, all of a sudden, I just wasn't craving it anymore. And I went um, totally vegan during the pandemic. And I have felt so much better for myself. And uh, hiking, I really feel so much more energized. And I can't say this is for everybody, but it worked for me. Follow-up question. Yeah. 
have you had a cheat meat meal since going vegan that veggie doesn't know about? No, I actually haven't. You haven't cheated any meat? No. Food uh, infidelity? Every yeah. once in a while we <laughs> have. Sneaky bacon? So I have a something to pepperoni. say about being vegan. I think vegan is an awesome thing to aspire to or do, especially for the planet. But my one thing is it's so good at saying no yeah. to factory farmed things or you know all of the bad things about the meat industry. But it's not good at saying yes. And so I found that after a while of being vegan, I found that I felt like I needed a different protein source. And so I started eating what I call happy chicken eggs. And they're like your backyard chicken eggs, your farmer's market eggs, where the chickens get to run around and eat grubs and do chicken things. Yeah, so her mom's um, neighbor has some really cool chickens. Yeah. And so we do dehydrate some of their eggs because we know they're really well taken care of and such. But, but I, I think it's good to take your money out of that industry. But I also think it's better if you can put it into something that's doing it right and doing mm -hmm. it more humanely and doing it ethically. And that's where... I made that move and he kind of made that move with me as well of just like, okay, well, what can we do that is saying no to what we feel is wrong, but also saying yes to those that we think are doing it right. I like that. You do that in terms of, haven't you gone to like a local butcher and gotten yeah, your meat from It gets there? expensive. I'm mm -hmm. sure you guys probably encountered that yeah. doing the vegan thing as well. But mm -hmm. yeah, I, I do like a cow share from a local We've talked about doing that when like we move in together. Yeah. You end up paying for it, but um, like you, I'm very against factory farming. I find that to be incredibly cruel, but I, not everyone has the uh, monetary resource to do that, so mm -hmm. I, I get it. Do you also follow a vegan gear and apparel line? So same kind of thing. I think it's really important to take your money out of unethical areas and look for where it's ethical. And so there is ethically sourced down. You just have to look for it. Mm -hmm. Or there is, you know, ethically sourced wool. You just have to do extra resource. Um, so I always do heavy research before I purchase something that does have like wool or down in it. So what companies, brands do you recommend in terms of ethically sourced? Good question. Merino or down products? Darn Tough does pretty good. Um, Patagonia does really well. I researched... I've at least a while ago when I researched it, Marmot had ethically sourced down. Um, Jacks are better did as well. Mm -hmm. um, if you ask them, they'll tell you where they get the down from. Are there any, like, I know a lot of, oh, crack in the back in the process. I, I know a lot of people that use like ultralight gear companies. A lot of that is lighter weight down, like quilts and sleeping bags and that sort of thing. Are there any that are on your radar that do it better? I haven't done too much research into quilts lately. Um... We've been using this couple's quilt by Jacks are better where we can like snap it together. And um, well, we liked yeah. it a little better when it was Omni tape. Yeah, they made a mistake. They've added buttons instead of uh, it's basically like Velcro that was in between. And you can like make a couple. You can either have your own individual quilt or you can stick them together and have one big quilt. And uh, that way I can steal his body heat. Yeah, very good. Because I'm a cold sleeper. Jacks are better at trails days. We, mm -hmm. were, we went to talk to them. Oh, yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. I remember they were a heavy advertiser on whiteblaze.net back in the day. That was when they first yeah. came on my radar. Do you guys follow Duckworth at all? No. They do Merino, I think based out of Montana. And this was at least my info from a handful of years ago. But all of the Merino they source is from their farm oh, in cool. Montana. So That's awesome. Yeah. Might be something up your alley. Yeah. Before we change trails, I want to go back to Chance's Chaos Corner. I know we're running COD, long. COD. Um, but there was a follow-up to the earlier what is the best thing about hiking with each other question. 
What is the most annoying thing about hiking with the other person? We just got to break it up with some humor. We should separate them so they can give the most honest answer. <laughs> Would you want to say yeah, don't, 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 morning hiking with Go me? Go back to back. Yeah. Don't yeah. put salt. Don't put salt. Uh, <laughs> what are you going to say? I was going to, well, I was going to say the most annoying thing has to be just hiking with me in the morning. Because... No, 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 no. What's the most annoying no, thing about hiking with No, that's mine for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> What do, what do I do that's annoying to you? Yeah, the most annoying thing she does. Veggie is very, very particular to the miles. And so I am not. I am very, very general. So I'll say, that's ah, around 10 miles. And she's like, no, it's 9.8. Or, uh, oh, we got to, yeah. Oh, and I mean, many more examples. But she, it, to the point that our buddy, the darkness, she purposely says mileage is wrong just so she did this for 2000 miles to me <laughs> before she laughed in my face and told me that she was doing this just to get her to correct them every time and yeah so that's I love probably the trail name the darkness <laughs> she's on the pct a right now background where does the preciseness stem from numbers just stick in my head they just stick there yeah i don't know i'm that same way like i would get furious with people if they tell me point to a difference. I'm like, it does make a difference. It does. In terms of my mind, it makes a difference. I agree. <sighs> okay, what's the most annoying thing he does? He word vomits in the morning. Like what? So for so like often we'll get up at five and then start hiking around six, like when sunrise happens. So we can get the most daylight because you know I get wildlife photos too. So wildlife is often more ac uh, active in the morning. But he his mind just goes crazy in the morning and he just talks. Like for two or three hours, it's like his stream of consciousness coming out. Almost, so it's not a conversation; it's a monologue. Yes, without yeah. making eye contact, you look at me. You look at me. Don't look at each other. Without looking at each other, what's the most annoying morning story he's ever told you? Like, what? Don't look at her. <laughs> what's well, like one of these word vomits where you're like, I can't believe you just put air into that. Most of it's gear ideas. <laughs> Like, like how he's going to modify gear or like make some gear to make it fit like a very specific purpose. Yeah, it's very, very specific, very so detailed. I've taught him that he just needs to talk to his phone so he remembers it <laughs> instead of asking me to remind him of all of his gear ideas. Yeah. So Don't talk he, to me is what you're saying. He, he has a whole a vlog. Yeah, right. No, he so has what, a folder in his phone like a of gear ideas. Folder, uh, yeah. what, what's, your, what's the top gear innovation that oh, you have like to pending. See? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I don't know. Let's see, that's why I have a private folder. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got a segment called Patent Pending. Everyone oh, okay. knows that they can't steal these ideas. Uh, interesting. Oh, well, pending. Some. Okay, back in the day, I really thought the sun umbrella just needed a solar added to it where a cord could come down, it can plug up and or charge up the bottom handle of that uh, solar panel or of the uh, umbrella. And uh, you can have little light LED lights in it too. Um, it'd be nice if you can plug your phone into it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I like that. nice little battery-powered solar umbrella. Back that's to the trails. That's a good Zach. one for patent pending, yeah. <laughs> um, so next we're, this is, we're, I guess, present day, Grand Enchantment Trail. We talked about CDT, so yep. I know obviously yeah. we're yada yadding a big one. Yeah, so the Grand Enchantment, it's another one of those Brett Tucker routes. Um, this one is probably his most popular one. Um, I think. I don't know. Maybe the lowest, the highest is, but... Yeah. It, You'd have to ask him. It's not a trail per se where it's completely trail. It, it's called the Grand Enchantment Trail, but it's more of a route. And it goes from Phoenix 
the superstitions uh, outside of uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and it hikes to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and no direct route, and it's about 800 miles. I think the way we hiked it, it was 827. Yeah. But we doubled a section because we liked it so much. This was twice. the first trail that we section hiked. We didn't just do it in a continuous through. Uh, we did the first section over Christmas with our buddy Maverick and Shadow. And then we came back in January and when we had permits for Air Viva Canyon. Well, we did the Arizona overlap section by ourselves. Oh, too. yeah. We went and did the Arizona trail overlap by ourselves. Also in January. And then the Air Viva Canyon, you have to get a permit and it's really beautiful. So it's worth uh, doing it. And we went and did that in January with sealskin socks and it was freezing cold. Mm. But awesome. But really awesome. This is a canyon that, like, you can see Kuta Monday and... Uh, I think they're actually Kawada Monday. Kawada Monday, yeah. That's what Google tr- uh, pronunciation said. They're... I don't know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> it's this amazing Context. animal related to a raccoon. Hmm. It's kind of got a reddish fur. It has striped tails, like a white you. and black striped tail. And it has a longer nose, almost like an anteater, but not quite as long. <laughs> They're really weird Ooh. and super rare in the U.S. Oh, um, this is my, this matches my hair. <laughs> here's one that I took. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, they're so cute. It's like a marm. No, it's got a bigger snout than that. Oh, it's you awesome. took this? I took yeah. that. This is my got four the pound camera. Tail. Oh, I want one. Yeah, right? They're I adorable. I domesticate one and bring it home. Its face is almost primate like. It's really interesting. Yeah. Google's got some really cute. Look at the cute. Look at your It's hard to believe that's yeah. an animal in the US, yeah. right? I've never seen that before. Apparently, they're really popular or like really prolific in Costa Rica. And some of South America, and that's one of the northernmost pockets in the U.S. Looks like they're called Coatis, C-O-A-T-I. Mm-hmm. I think it's the name is from a Brazilian tribe. And Don't these are like me on that, but. desert animals? Yeah, Canyon so kind of animals. Arizona, they're in a few spots. When I was hiking the AZT the first time, I saw one going up Miller Peak, and I remember just catching it for a glimpse, and I was like, oh, what was that? And my friends didn't see it, and they thought I was crazy when I was trying to explain what I saw. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I know I saw it. I know it. And then we Googled it, and yeah, it's a cool little animal. Sleep. Oh, yeah. It's oh, adorable. yeah, the sleeping ones are adorable. Say the name of this again. Kuwata Monday. Kuwata Monday. Q-U-A-T-A-M-U-N-D. Okay. I've mm-hmm. always seen it spelled with a C. It, Google corrected me to Q-U-A-T-A-M-U-N-D-E, but it looks nice. like there were a couple of spellings. Yeah. yeah. It could also be C-O-A-T-I space M-U-N-D-I. That's how we've kind of known to spell mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So give me your top three wildlife captures. And is this one of them? This is one of them. Definitely. Okay. Well, let's erase this one. Give me your top four. What do you think? That black bear on the CDT in the Bob Marshall. Oh was yeah, one of the coolest. It's actually in the CDT calendar. calendar this year. Oh wow, uh, for May. May. Um, yeah, we were walking through the Bob Marshall wilder- wilderness, and this one black bear was just sitting right off trail, maybe uh, fifteen yards off trail, and it looked really sleepy. It was just sitting on its butt like a teddy bear would, with its feet straight out, and it had the most distinct distinct V on its chest, a white V. And uh, we watched it for the longest time and it wasn't moving and we thought it was about to fall asleep. And so I pulled out the bear spray 
while Veggie pulled out the camera and we worked You had to get a little closer than you should have to like actually get through. There was no way to go around. There were trees everywhere. Yeah. So we uh, worked our way past and she snapped a couple really good pictures as we walked by. And uh, yeah, the multiple hikers got to see that bear sitting in the same spot. And so we all kind of chatted about this unique bear. Hmm. Um, Yeah. What do you think? Well, we were really happy with the seeing zone tail hawks. Is this the one? Uh, no. Oh, no, but that's it's a good uh, bear, too. It's further back than that. Okay. Um, but that was a good one in Glacier. Um, but we saw okay. tons of... definitely it. Yeah, with that's the V it. on yeah. his chest. Oh, yeah. oh I yeah. like him. Wait, show me him again. So one of my other favorite ones yeah. is actually he on looked that almost screen, sad. too. The two hawks there. Those are zone tail hawks, and we had not really seen hardly any of them before. And on the GET, we saw so many. And they really started to amaze us, and we got to know them on they're, this trail. They're mostly all black hawk, and their tail has a perfect white stripe across it. Hmm. What sound did they make? Hmm. A really distinctive one that's almost like an eagle. But I wouldn't be able to imitate it. <laughs> I would love to imitate it for you. But... <laughs> Next. We'll just have to insert them in. I would say the would have been on the Grand Enchantment Trail, too. We were walking in, well, technically Grand Enchantment, or the CDT, we were walking into Doc Campbell's and oh, yeah. on the road walk in from the Gila Cliff or from the, um, yeah, the Gila, Gila Cliff, Cliff dwellings, dwellings to Doc. Doc Campbell, we saw this snag, which is just a dead, dead standing, tree. standing tree. And it had all these holes in it. And we saw all these, what are they, nut holes? Acorn woodpeckers. Acorn woodpeckers. And they were just zipping back and forth like crazy and we're like what the heck's going on this is a really inefficient way to hunt and uh then all of a sudden we realized there was a snake climbing the tree getting like eggs and whatnot out of their like holes in the snag Mm. and so the birds were actually dive bombing this snake to get it off of the tree the birds won the birds won good guys won yep the snake Fuck fell. Snake. The snake fell like ten feet, ten feet, fifteen feet from its uh, point, and yeah, it was like really, really inter- entertaining to watch. It was like the Nature Channel, like yeah. right in front of us. I hate snakes. Isn't <laughs> it funny that we're just inherently rooting for the bird? Yeah. <laughs> it's like okay. fuck that snake. Die. Oh yeah. yeah. I've got two big questions before we wrap this. Um, I won't do both in a row in case Zach has any, but two big ones I have. First towards you veggie but also towards you but mainly in terms of the yearage the compilation of years i'm saying is based on the trail resume what we just went through is 15 years of hiking okay 2008 to 2023 yes. 15 years a lot of people would love to do this shit for 15 years like that's like pipe dream right like that would be so sick to get to do this mm-hmm. for 15 years how do you finance it how do you make it happen financially I would say, number one, I was lucky to be debt-free. So mm-hmm. I didn't have student debt. I didn't have any outstanding spending debt of any type. And heavy budgeting and seasonal work. So, you know, we got really good at working seasonal jobs, especially like Vale helped a lot because we would work one job that gave us um, really cheap housing and we would work a second job that gave us a free ski pass. And so instead of going to the bars, we skied for our entertainment, which was free based on that job. And then we would work through, we'd work a lot of 10, 12 hour days Mm -hmm. in the winter and just ski, work, work, sleep and repeat. And we could do that for, you know, six months at a time and just save money. And we would 
the other key is to not eat out. So we cook everything. So we try to cook almost everything from scratch. Um, we'd make, you know, like jars full of food. So each day we could just go grab like a jar each for dinner and we'd make sandwiches for lunch that we'd stick in our pockets for the ski lift. Yep, pack your own lunches. Pack your own lunches, out. yeah. Mm -hmm. But save so much money just doing that. Don't drink out at mm -hmm. bars. Like if you want to drink with friends, get a six pack at like the store. It's way cheaper. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, when they say like a six month through hike costs like six to eight grand, for me, for a lot of people that sounds expensive and rightly so because you're not working at the same time. When I think about, and Denver is a very high cost of living area. So when I think about six to eight grand for six months, that seems like impossibly cheap, minus the fact that you're not making an income at the time. Mm -hmm. But then the part that always hangs me up is, am I screwing myself over for retirement, right? Like, am I in, like not paying attention to a 401k, to a Roth, to saving any money? Like, am I gonna wake up in 20 years and be like, holy shit, like I'm fucked for the rest of my life. Is that something that you guys are planning for before you go and do this or during this? Or is that something where it's like, we'll face it when it comes? How do you tackle that sort of thing? A little of both. Mm -hmm. We worry about it and we pay attention to it and we never drain our savings all the way. Yeah, um, if a hike is gonna drain all of our savings, then it's not worth it. And so we choose our hikes strategically and we budget while we're on hikes too because we know we wanna do another one in the future. And so in the beginning, our at least my hikes were a lot more expensive because I was learning. And then once I realized, oh, I kinda wanna do this for a lot longer than just three hikes. I started budgeting on trail, not drinking as much at the bars, not eating out at the restaurants as much, and then also doing in and out of towns. Um, so only staying one night in town. Or even not even staying Or not a even night. a night, and basically having a full zero if you camp just outside of town and you walk in, get your food and everything, get a shower if you can, and then get out. On the GET, I think we skipped a couple towns in general for okay. showers because it was only like three days. And we're like, ah, oh, we can go a little bit longer. So we saved a bunch of money just not staying in that town. We did um, a few six-day carries instead of like three and three. Yeah. And that saved us money and time. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's just being conscious of what you're spending your money on. Is it more important for you to spend like thousands of dollars at the bar hanging out with your friends like for some people that is i mean you want to have a really good time on your trail but we kind of wanted to go on more adventures and see more things and so we we tamped down the spending a bit yeah do you I, have uh, no go ahead i'll pass it to you after this one do you have any recommendations for someone who wants to make this a lifestyle the way that you guys have any recommendations for how to make that possible I'd say another one is don't do the big ones back to back. So I find not only mm -hmm. for your budget, but for your body as well. Mm -hmm. I really like to do a big trail and then a smaller trail and then doing that smaller trail. So like this year, we were primarily just doing the GET. So we'll have a lot more time to build back up our bodies after we've depleted them. But we'll also have a lot more time to build up our budgets. Yeah, something you don't really think about is year after year of hiking, your body really doesn't recover. You need to think about eating better and uh, building back good muscle and not just fat uh, because the next year you're going to go back out and burn it all right back off again. And if you don't build enough back up, you are just always working in a deficit. And so we tend to space out the the 
big hikes with smaller hikes and or if it's a small hike like the hey duke where it's only 800 miles but it's incredibly strenuous that takes just as much of a toll on your body as a big hike and so we plan accordingly to that and chance asked the question about saving for retirement but mm -hmm. the thing that got me onto the at was reading tim ferris's book and in uh, the four-hour work week and in mm -hmm. that book he writes about mini retirements yep and he emphasizes the point that the idea of saving all of your money to 65 years old when you're at an age where you really can't enjoy the luxuries that you provided for yourself as much for whatever reason at the time in my life just really hit home for me and like just the um mental reprieve that taking periodic breaks throughout your career can offer you and eventually have a benefit to your career because you're not burnt out because you're mm -hmm. a happier person like it's certainly worked for me um have you found that to be the case for you like do you feel more inspired to do i know you're doing mostly seasonal work but in terms of pursuing some sort of passion because like i know mandy obviously you're doing the uh the wildlife photography but is there like a longer arc project or career trajectory that you guys are following with this career trajectory i would say no we do pick up seasonal jobs like we we're talking about i would love to move more into the digital space uh including wildlife photography and or writing and kind of seeing which plays out and you know so i'm working on that on the side mm -hmm. um I, I also read tim tim ferris's book mm -hmm. yeah the four hour work yeah week. and i would say on that we like skied for so long just in, in Vail, getting that free ski pass from the job and the amount of older people that asked us about our lives the and ski we told lift them, conversations yes especially when someone falls off the lift and then you have to sit there and talk to people for an extra five minutes and they would be like no you're doing it right like i no, wish we did what I, you did when we were younger and you're living the life yeah and stuff like that that conversation happened at least once a week skiing mm -hmm. of the older people saying, no, do it that way. Yeah. There was a study done about the top regrets of people on their deathbeds and working too hard is one of the most commonly cited things. So yeah, I think taking the chance to like really squeeze the juice of life and enjoy it is a valuable thing. Yeah. I think that's- One of the quotes that I actually write in logbooks a lot yeah, is life is short and retirement's not guaranteed. Right. Uh, that's, that's a good point too, is mm -hmm. you don't know when your last day is going to be. So mm -hmm. yeah, you gotta, you gotta work in some joy. Well, before you wrap it, I've got one, like I said, I had two. I've yeah. got one more. Go for it. You guys met in 2015. 2015. Yeah. Started hiking. We're now eight years later. I noticed neither of you guys have a ring on your finger. When are you proposing? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> It will happen when the time's right. <laughs> Way to make things incredibly awkward, John. I have to end on that yeah. note. Or we could just not involve Oh my the God, state. do you want to propose on the podcast? Do you want to do it right now? <laughs> no. <laughs> that was a good valiant effort. Yeah. I try. Yeah. I pull every string I can. Yeah. Well, this has been a very long one. Oh, holy Sorry. shit. Don't apologize. It's your fault for hiking so yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this has been everything that we could have hoped for and more. I'm glad that you guys were both able to make this happen. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. And uh, I'm sure the listeners will feel similarly. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, yeah it's been a pleasure. Yeah. This is usually where I hit the button and then we jump to the segments and I let you jump out. 
but I'm not going to do it that way this time because uh, the Trek propaganda that I want to do today is actually your first article, which I realize as of the recording of this is not out. By the time people hear it, definitely will be out. You mentioned wanting to find a career in the digital space, and uh, Mandy is a new contributor to the Trek, which is how you fell on my radar. And uh, the piece that you did was the five benefits to thru-hiking trails other than the Triple Crown. I'm going to pass the mic your way because I actually haven't read this one yet. We've um, never had someone give their own tre pro Trek propaganda. I know. This is really special. Whoa. So you don't have to give each of the five points because that would... Ruin the surprise. That, well, that would also assume that you memorized every piece. I don't know if you did or not. But, I think uh, I could a, list them. A couple of the highlights, I think, will be enough to get people to the article. So my main emphasis for writing this one was I think that the Triple Crown is absolutely wonderful and a fantastic goal, but it's not all that's out there. And I think people get a little too hung up on it and miss a lot of the really crazy cool experiences they could have on a trail other than that or on a shorter trail. I think there's huge benefits to those two to 800 mile trails and even the mid-range trails like the, you know, the PNT at 1200 miles. And I think it's amazing to remember that, you know, those smaller trails you can budget for a lot more easily. So if like the monetary process is a harder thing for you to stomach, you can always section hike and you can always get on those smaller trails and you can have just as cool of an experience or even a different experience or a cooler experience on other trails. Yeah, beautifully said. And one of the things I, I like about some of these shorter trails is it's common. It happens to me. I don't know if it happens to you guys, but over the course of 2,000 miles, you kind of hit the doldrums of the experience. And I didn't experience that on, say, like the Long Trail or the Colorado Trail. Like they're the right size where it feels like a vacation the entire time. I mentioned that. Do you? Okay. Like yeah. I said, I haven't read it yet because it, uh, it's still going through the, the editing process. process. Yeah. Um, but thank you. That was a beautiful rundown. And the other piece of Trek propaganda to that point is uh, by the time you hear this, Kelly will be in Europe doing her seven-month gallivanting across the pond. Uh, I just want to give a shout-out to our new guy, Owen Eggenbrot, has been with the Trek for over three years now. And uh, he's an awesome guy. Definitely going to get him on the podcast. He's based out of Salida now. So uh, hope Kelly's having a good time. And welcome to Do that to desk Owen. slap again. The Kelly, most dad thing I, you've done I, the whole episode. I hope you're, oh, then I guess that is also another perfect segue. Is I did come up with my thing that I agree with the boomers on. Oh, did you? It's that <laughs> music was better back then. I, I, yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there was less making it up. Like I feel like now you can like like with the computer you can make things make things. Yeah. Whereas back then, like you had to actually like make things. I think there's also a value to having fewer sources to getting music because now there's a million artists on Spotify and nobody listens to traditional radio. And I think there was something cool about having like getting your artists from the Jay Leno show or MTV. There was just fewer channels to get this. And there was more of like a um, cultural consensus on what was good nowadays. Like I know Taylor Swift and okay, well, she's great, but she's, I, yeah, I see where you're that, coming from. That's not a commentary on her. It's just like the number of popular artists that I could even recite are so small. And I don't think that's ever happened in history where like their music is so fragmented. And I have a feeling that has a detrimental effect. No, there was, oh, I wish I could remember this guy's name now. But there is that post that has gone around Facebook where this guy was playing violin in the subway in New York City and like put out a 
hat or whatever to collect money. And people just kept walking past him while he's playing violin. He played it all day. End of the day, he collected about 32 bucks. I cannot remember the name. I reread this article today. But it was a guy that two days prior had sold out this music hall. Mm. Best violinist in like the world, arguably, was playing on a $3.5 million violin. And no one noticed it because they were Everybody's just walking past him because he was in common. Like, yeah. and, and they had done this study that like part of him being there was for a study about do you recognize talent and like this sort of thing in everyday life yeah when it's like just like right around you instead of just like when it's told to you that it's supposed to be this good i wonder if that might also just be a genre thing where people are not necessarily as interested in i just presume classical music is what is coming out of a solo violinist but there's a guy um he's got a very popular youtube channel i guess it's contradicting my previous point mark rebelay he performed at Red Rocks last year and he does the same thing where he goes out and sets up his DJ's station and like one person walks by and will start tapping their toe and then you fast forward an hour and he's just surrounded by people and there's like a dance party. Um, so I, th I think getting people's attention can be done. You just have to speak their language. I don't know if a violin is more challenging with that. I mean, if you like classical, you should know. Oh, it was um, his last name, Joshua Bell. It was Joshua Bell during a January morning rush hour. Bell opened the case of his $3.5 million Stradivarius and played. Yeah, it, it it's a cool story. I mean, I think like either way, like people, it was $100 a ticket at cheapest for the seats that he had sold out the stadium for, mm. for what I mean, not stadium, but Arena, venue whatever. for yeah. two days prior. Yeah. And he's now standing in this subway station. And I'm sure if you're that popular, people know about you who have walked past you. Yeah. But because you're in a mundane setting, they view you in a mundane way. Hmm. I don't know. Just a cool thing about. Hmm. Um, I would update my question of the day with kids are on their phones too much. Yeah. And I know that like that was said about us back in the day, but we had to pay 10 cents a text message. Like I... I loved getting a new cell phone because my dad would call them and block text messaging so I couldn't have it. And every time you'd get a new phone, it would unblock the texting. And I would have until the month ended for him to realize that it was unblocked for me mm -hmm. to be able to text. And the one time I got away with it was I ran the text message bill so high that it was cheaper for him to add texting than block it. Yeah. And so he added it. So I know like I, I know the kids are on their phones too much thing. But dude, when you have like a baby and you're throwing an iPad in front of its face. Yeah. No, like, it's, it's, we've actually scaled back on that with Leo. I know it's easy and like I'm not a parent, so I don't know what it's like. And I, I can't empathize with like the struggles and I'm coming at it from a point of not knowing. It's hard because it is the perfect solution in but terms of. fuck them up somehow, right? For sure. Definitely. But if you're tired of hearing a toddler screaming and you're also trying to keep two babies alive. It's really hard not to just hit the easy button and but that's put why on this cars is, too. But that's why this is a good boomer sentiment because you're not a boomer. And yeah. so you're giving me the, well, but, yeah. but you're not a boomer. So this is classic boomer, right? No, I understand. I just, it's funny because out of anybody that I know, my mom spends more time on Facebook. <laughs> well, I mean, come at me when I have kids because I'm sure I'm going to shove an iPad in their face yeah. at some point. Yeah. Out of frustration and like a need for fresh air and like sanity. My buddy T-Bag has a good theory on this. I he, love him. he thinks that I forget what the my kids' generation even is. The I was gonna say beta, but that sounds bad. I don't know. Whatever it is, he suspects that because the kids being raised by millennials 
are the generation to have gone through the paradigm shift of the internet. We are cognizant of its effects and therefore we will raise our kids accordingly. Wait, I, I kind of think the same as him. I think because Gen X didn't have all the technology, they're more akin to let their kids have the iPad they're in their face ignorant more. ignorant to how much it can fuck you Because up. they don't know. But yeah. whereas we grew up with it and we saw the change and we saw how much it changed things, like I'm more likely to not want it in front of my kid's face. Yeah. Whereas they just don't know what they don't know because they didn't have it like drastically change the middle of their childhood. Yeah. We'll uh, see. Me and that, T-Bag are on the same page. I, I like the theory. I'm more pessimistic about technologies taking over everything, but... Um, okay, so that's our joint boomer thought then. Yeah. We're doomed. In lieu of stupidest thing of the week, we're going to go with Chance's creation thought of the week. Thought of the week. Before our thought of the week, I have a thought of the week. Well, it's the not day. my thought. Um, but remember how you had made a future triple crown of holidays that aren't really holidays? Mm -hmm. Something along those lines? Um, Rachel must have taken that very seriously. She put National Mutt Day. Did you see that in the show notes? I put that in there. You put that in there? Yeah. I thought I, Rachel did. No. I, That's today. I was getting rambunctious. It's the release day. Yeah. Yeah. AKA today. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have said that if I knew it was you. I was okay. Doing that well, now Rachel. that we've got it in the no, notes. No, no, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Do you everyone. have a go-to mutt? Your top mutt? Isn't the point of a mutt that there's no specific one? You could call it a hybrid. Like, I don't know if you consider like a golden doodle kind of a mutt. It's two breeds blended together. Can I Or be something a... that you've seen that you like. Let me, um, let me, let me be honest here. I was very allergic to dogs from birth through college. Somehow I outgrew this allergy, thank God. Um, but like to the point I couldn't go over someone's house if they had a dog because I couldn't breathe. And the natural response to that is to just avoid dogs because it hurts too much to try to like be one with dog and not have it work or to pet dog and have it go wrong or any of that. So you just kind of like, and the dogs pick up on that too. Where like when you go in and you just avoid them, they avoid you. Like it's just a mutual understanding of let's not here. So it it took until getting Harper age of my life for me to even learn breeds of dogs. Like I didn't know. I knew what a husky was, and I knew what a golden retriever was, and I knew what a lab was. Mm. And I learned what an Australian shepherd was, knowing that like because of this past in, like impediment of mine, I have such strict needs for what I can get that I have to make sure it's right so that I don't f this up that I learned what an Australian Shepherd was, but I I don't really know dogs hmm. because of that. So no mutts for you? I mean, like I could barely tell you the breeds, let alone the mixtures. Yeah. Well, the correct answer was Sierra, so. What is she? I don't know. We think she's a Belgian Malinois. So I haven't done the genetic testing thing, um, just going based off of her appearance and traits, but we think she's a Belgian Malinois lab mix, but she's just the perfect dog. I know a mutt that's name is Disco, and it's beautiful, but I don't remember what it's mixed with. Yeah. Disco's a great dog name. I think most of the time you're just doing guesswork, because from my understanding is those genetic tests are kind of bullshit. A lot of times it'll just be like 40% other. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, cool. So half you don't know. But, that, uh, but don't yeah. Know. Uh, shout out to all the mutts out there. My nose is still full of water. This happened off air. Um I opened my water bottle, the new one. Remember last time when I told you guys I lost my water bottle? I got a new one. Yeah. I opened it and it water fountain water all over my face. You did get blasted. So if you're not watching on the YouTube, you should. Yeah. 
Okay, so thought of the week. I thought I saw the most alien shit the other day. Do you remember when I texted you? And I was like, reminder for later, I saw alien stuff in the sky. Why? How could you roll your eyes as if you didn't remember this text? Did I respond to it? No. I probably it was did. past your bedtime, but at some point you must have seen this yeah. and thought... We're bumping up against past That's my a crazy, like... You're bumping up what? We're bumping up against my bedtime right now. Okay. Are you telling me to rush this? No, I'm just saying that... Uh, Do you want my thought or not? Bedtimes are relative. Go ahead. Uh, well, you're driving to Vail for this wedding. And we look out the windshield and there's this like line of light, like distant line of light. And Garrett's like, what's that? And he's driving. And I'm like, must be like a, like a, I don't know, something. And I'm looking at it because I'm not driving. And it's getting closer and closer. And it's a line of like bright light, bright light, bright light, bright light, like a string of dots of lights. And it's getting bigger. And like, it gets like, to the point that I'm leaning my head out of the front windshield and it is freaking huge. Like it's taking up half of the entire windshield. I've never seen anything this big in my life. Dots of light in a perfectly straight line. It looked like almost there was a string connecting them. I'm like thinking like Santa's sleigh in terms of the string connecting them. This huge ass dots of light. I go and I post in the, I, I did this mile by mile book club thing so I could have company while I read this shit. And I post like, because we're reading this book about geology that talks about space. And I'm like, talk about space. I just saw the craziest space shit. What the hell was this? And like, I, I'm like, Garrett, I know we're driving on I-70. I know we just got out of the Eisenhower Tunnel. I know this is dangerous roads. Stick your head out the front of this car and look at this. It is the closest star thing I've ever seen in my life. And then it just disappeared. And I, I posted it in the book club thing. And one of the people commented back, I think you saw the Starlink satellite. I, <laughs> I have never heard, I've never seen, heard of, I mean, I've heard of them. I don't follow space too much. Yeah. Holy shit. If you didn't know about the Starlink satellites and you saw that in front of your windshield like I did, I thought I witnessed. Yeah. I was like asking Garrett, I was like, do you think this will be on the news? I was trying to take videos of it. I was like, do you think we saw something no one's ever seen before? Like I... I, that was when I texted you. I thought like, I thought I saw nothing that had ever happened before. Yeah. I was on the Starlink train until you said how big the light was. I thought maybe like a comet was, was coming so through close. your car or something. No, but it was, a, it, was like a, it was like a chain of them together in synchronicity. And I was so confused. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have had your experience in the last year or two. Felt as, like a real dummy once they pointed it out. But yeah, well, for a minute there, I felt like the luckiest person on earth. Yeah. That was my thought. Uh, my thought of the week is, this is almost cliche, but you know the scenario where you mentioned to someone asking them if they're pregnant and falling into the trap that they're not pregnant. Oh, did you ask someone who's not pregnant? No, if this they're was, pregnant? this was just a hypothetical, but I, I, it, tell me if I'm wrong. Is it not as offensive, but certainly also offensive if somebody is pregnant, like third trimester level and you don't bring it up No, because then you're implying that they could potentially just be that big and you're not acknowledging something that is very obvious. No, because then you just look dumb. Listen, I'll tell you what, we, we've broached that we've broached the me sensitivity towards eating topics before. I was asked in sixth grade if I was pregnant. In sixth grade? Sixth grade. That's Imagine just what that does being to a girl. Stupid. No, no, no. This was a girl who came, she didn't speak English. She came from a different country. And we were in tech class and she pointed to my stomach because I've always been belly fat. Like when I get fat, it's in the tum. 
pointed to my belly and gestured like cradle with her arms and then like, huh? Yeah. And I still won't forget it. That was sixth grade and I still won't forget it. Yeah. A traumatic certainly. To I will a sixth never grader. get over that. But there's a lot of things that happen in middle school that don't necessarily translate to but adult if you, life. But if you didn't point out that I was like, I'm, I'm not expecting to be pregnant and going into like a public setting and everyone being like, she's pregnant. You no, know, but like if you're engaging with somebody, if you're having a conversation. If I, it's not relevant to the convo, I don't expect you to stop our conversation about current news and be like, by the way, you're pregnant. It seems like a rel. It's like somebody holding like a Super Bowl trophy. Like it's a conversation starter, and probably something that's you that's, getting distracted and being like, you know, like I have to say it. It's probably the thing that is most central on their mind at all times, and I feel like a lot of people are reluctant to bring it up because of their fear of being wrong about it. But what if I'm pregnant and we're having a conversation, and you're talking to me about like the thunderstorms in Colorado. And I'm like, yeah, it's crazy. It was hailing by my house today. And you're like, oh my God, yeah. Like it wasn't raining in Golden. And I'm like, yeah, it was like the size of quarters. And you're like, you're pregnant. I don't like, think that's fucking weird. That is weird. I agree with that. Like, but that, how are you, that's not how, how are anyone brings up it anything in, in but how, conversation. But how are you slipping it in? If you're having an extended conversation and things move in different directions and like a very obvious physical trait on somebody is something that you would acknowledge again the wouldn't you wait for them to bring it up like oh yeah like third trimester has been rough or oh yeah i can't wait till the baby's due or oh yeah it's been so hard to plan for this or oh yeah the doctor is it narcissistic for somebody to bring up something about themselves and not be asked by the other person i don't think so i think it i think it i think you're doing yourself a solid by not guessing unless you like really know okay I'd be curious to get a pregnant person's perspective on that. Cause well, I'd be curious to get a not pregnant person's perspective on that. Because if you're not, fully, I'm not pregnant. <laughs> but if you're not, no, no, no. I'm saying like if you're not fully sure, you could be wrong. Yeah. So I'm but curious to like, get a perspective of someone that you'd be wrong with. But the perspective that I'm interested in here is the pregnant person and somebody skirting that point in the conversation because they're afraid of being wrong about that point. If you're pregnant, can't you kind of pick up on that and like? If you're a good conversationalist, to drop a hint there, be like, oh, yeah, so. But again, is it your duty to bring up your own physical trait to somebody else? Is it your duty to bring up their physical trait to them? It's a joyous thing. should be celebrated. Wouldn't they celebrate it? I don't think it's polite to talk about yourself. You never talk about yourself. We're on a podcast where that's the job. <laughs> I'm curious, too. Yeah. I just put it here on the side of caution there based on my past trauma. Okay. <laughs> past trauma We're, you don't understand yeah i don't know did, had you had your first period at that point no but it was pre my eating disorder okay. so let's put that on the list of things that attributed yeah so you weren't capable of getting pregnant that's Not why i don't that know point, if it's no. directly tangible no, it was just here. fat I understand. I understand why somebody <laughs> pointed it out. I just, I think that scenario is not necessarily directly relevant. To yeah, but it. now I always, like, literally we went to this wedding last weekend and I showed a picture to Mims and I was like, can I post this one or do I look pregnant in it? Like, I'm literally always thinking that now. And yeah. it's not all because of that conversation, but it certainly fucking traumatized me. Mm -hmm. Again, I preface this by saying somebody who's third trimester, like... Being bloated is not a third trimester belly. There are different things. If there's no question, then there's no question. But there's got to be a line at some point. Don't, don't, why don't you just not be the one to cross that line? Just Let saying, someone else cross that line. It's, it's good when, it's a good conversation to have when somebody's pregnant. They're excited about it, as they should be. And to be like, I don't want to talk about this because you might think that I, if I'm wrong, if in the 1% chance case that I'm wrong about this, I've made the most egregious mistake possible. Yeah, I'm not saying never ask a pregnant person about their pregnancy, but I'm saying 
if you are wrong, definitely come tell us. Yeah. Definitely come tell us what it was like. Yeah. Please. Okay. Triple crown of things to eat when you're sick. Yes. I'm rounding up to say things that you consume when you're sick. Yeah. Things that go into your mouth when you're sick. Not medications. Yeah. You're not going to say Dayquil. No. But I'm going to go first because I'm going to take the low-hanging fruit ginger ale. Yes. Love a ginger ale when I, I'm sick. I don't know if I've ever had ginger ale outside of the context of being sick. Have your parents ever made you let it sit until it gets flat? Or is this another psycho my mom thing? Um, I could understand the reasoning behind it because carbonated bever- beverages... Make you puke more? Or burp, just upset your stomach in general. Yeah, my mom... I mean, granted, guys, audience, listeners, we did the um, triple crown... No, we did the question of the day of things your parents lied to you about. Yeah. My mom texted me unsolicitedly the other day explaining why... She told us we had to turn off the computers when there was lightning. Um, I'm going to explain Which, that. by the way, I think that was a real thing. Do you think she had merit? I never actually answered her text. Yes, Sorry, Mom. I, I think that does have That's merit. That's our last text message yesterday, 4.28 p.m. We didn't have... There's no context here. It's just we didn't have good surge protectors, so I was afraid the computers would get fried, and that's the entire context. Yeah, I think that was a real thing. All right, well, that was it. Yeah. Um, so she used to also make me wait until the ginger ale was flat. Mm. I, I don't actually have any clue about that, but if somebody said that was the case, I wouldn't be surprised. I have a distinct memory laying in her bed, on her side of the bed, and she had this like mantle thing behind the bed, and there was a glass of ginger ale on that ledge, and I had to sit and wait for like a couple, like lay and wait for a couple hours until it flattened enough where I could drink it. This could all be still future lies. I can't wait for this text message, Mom, yeah. where you explain this to me. Yeah. But yeah, ginger ale, I agree. That was pre-internet. That's when you don't know the difference between something that's true and something that's a wise Well, that's tale. why they got away with all this shit is we couldn't fact check them. They probably believed it. And for good reason. You're not going to just... get away with shit with your kids because they're going to go online and they're going to be like, my yeah. iPad says you're a liar, no, it's dad. They're, and they're right to do so. when um, You can fact check everything with just fact at any point. Okay, my two are a little obscure because I get back-to-back snake drafts. A little obscure, but these are things that my nana would give me when I was sick. Um, and I don't know why we is got... Is this an ethnic grandmother of any kind? Yes. Nana is Italian for grandma. Um, my mom's half is entirely like off the boat Italian. My nana came over on the boat. I don't know why we got throw up sick. Like we, It wasn't like frequent, frequent at her house. But like I remember multiple occasions where we'd go up there for the weekend and like we'd both have a trash can. Italian ice lemon flavored was one of her go-tos you're sick eat this lemon italian ice and then my second one is red gatorade both were like if we ever got sick at nana's house there was a beeline of an adult going to the grocery store and Didn't they had to walk pick in up with a red gatorade yeah that doesn't so mean you... i'm sick just because dr- i can drink red gatorade when i'm not sick i understand but a lot of people develop taste aversions to no things. It's just, it's one of those things where i like i feel like i was conditioned for this where it was because you are throwing up and you're sick we need to get red Gatorade and we need to get Italian ice that's lemon flavored. And this is all you're allowed to eat until you stop throwing up. And because of that, even to this day, if I ever get throw up sick, that's the only two things I want. Because I'm like, that's the only two things that fix it. Mm. And I don't know if that's actually true or if that's just like me being conditioned to only eat those things when I'm throwing up. I think if you believe it to be true, it's true. It's the placebo effect. Yeah. So it's very effective. Yeah. It's interesting that you haven't developed a taste aversion to that because like... 
when someone gets food poisoning, the thing that gives them the food poisoning, oftentimes they're unable to eat that for months or years. But that's what gives you it, not what fixes it. Sure, but there's still the stimulus is so close to the experience. It's like Pavlov's dog. Like yeah. the, the bell isn't what is making them hungry. I'm golden. I'll eat Italian ice all day. Okay. Okay. Um, similarly, no, I'm not going to do that. It's too close. I'm going to go with milkshakes, which is like the opposite. What? Yeah. It's not a thing that you should eat dairy of any kind when you're sick. But uh, for whatever reason, I think it was mostly my parents trying to lift my spirits because they were very protective over like ice cream of any kind. I almost so, just spit out my beer. Yeah. I know. Uh, it, when you're like when you're pukey sick, you were drinking. No, this milkshakes? is just sick in general. I don't know what this. The, like what sickness? Maybe the flu, like feverish, something not um, gastrointestinal. Do you not have any like lactose issues? Not really. I That's I did when I ate the half gallon challenge, apparently. But I think... a milkshake when you're uh, your parents like nuts. No offense to your parents. I'm sure they're lovely people. What is it? Feed a flu, starve a cold, something like that. Like there are certain things where we're not eating isn't the right course of action. And I think if you can get any calories down, feed a flu, starve a cold. Isn't that the saying? Other way around. I don't. You're the dad. What does that mean? I know when I had a fever, my dad used to cover me in blankets, and it'd be really uncomfortable. He'd tell me to sweat feed it a out. cold, starve a fever is an adage that's been around for centuries. The idea most likely originated during the Middle Ages, when people believed there were two kinds of illnesses: the illnesses caused by low temperatures, such as a cold, needed to be fueled, so eating was recommended. This little snippet doesn't actually indicate if that's correct or not, but that's the uh, word stems from. So it's not feed a flu. I had it backwards, but moral of the story is not all illnesses are things where like you should just be consuming electrolytes. Okay. I didn't know that things you ate when you were sick could have a wrong answer. <laughs> I, hey, I don't know. You you came at me for mine. What'd I do? You told me I brought a red gator. I was curious about the taste aversion. Yeah. We're very sniffy right now. <laughs> don't fun. turn this on me. You just came at me for milkshake. Don't fight. You are Garrett's a very bold man. Why? Uh, so my next one is, <laughs> this is more in my adult years. And I'm sure that this is counterproductive, but it just gives you the excuse to have a little fun. A hot toddy. Okay. I I, mean, I don't really have anything to comment on that one. Okay. That's surprising. I mean, that's got egg whites in it, does no. it not? Mm -mm. Are you sure? Yeah. I'm not going to waste time Googling this, but... You could just ask the people to... You're right. They're both shaking their head. No egg whites. Yeah. Basically just tea with honey and booze. Bourbon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm sure it's counterproductive. There's no way that something that hinders your immune system can possibly be good. But again, this might just be like a morale boost. I just remember at one point saying, ew, I don't like those. And I would assume the only reason I would have said that is because it had egg whites in it. Um, why are hot toddies good when sick? Okay, fine. I guess they're okay with it. Um, yeah, I'm, well, I'm guessing there's no way that they're good. What was your first one again? My first one was ginger ale. Oh, yeah, ginger ale. Okay, my third one, low-hanging fruit, like a soup broth. like a, And I don't want like a chicken noodle soup. I don't want anything I have to chew. I just want the broth. I'll take a chicken noodle broth. I'll yeah. take a wonton soup broth. I just want a broth that I can drink and ignore the rest of the substance yeah electrolytes you're getting your sodium 
Sweet. You have any honorable mentions? You guys have anything that you'd add to the mix? Cinnamon toast. I had toast on my mm. list as well. But cinnamon sugar. So like you put, now I put fake butter, but like back in the day, I put regular butter, or my mom did, and then a mix of cinnamon and sugar. Mm. That's a good one. Um, to go with the ginger as well, uh, ginger like candy, like chews. Mm. Oh man, if you can find those, they are so good. Yeah. Mm. Ginger is kind of a miracle drug. Herb. What I don't know what is the correct delineation of a I don't I don't think I have any other honorable mentions because I, I think yeah, it's a root, ginger root. I just don't think I like if I'm sick, I don't think I will have anything but Italian ice, lemon flavored, red Gatorade, a broth, or a ginger ale. I think that is actually all now that I'm thinking about it, that is all I will be willing to eat. Mm. Okay. Pedialyte. That was the other one too close to Gatorade. I think it's Pedialyte is actually just like the the good version of Gatorade. Gatorade's pretty light in the actual electrolyte nutrient department, but it's tasty. Have we done the triple crown of Gatorade flavors? I feel like that is too of an obvious one to not have done. No, but I'm going to have to look them up so I don't say colors. But we can do that I think in the people future. would know by the colors. I think that's how most people know them by. If you are going by the flavor profiles, like the cucumber one is the Spanish name for cucumbers, and I can't even think of it. But there's like three blue ones. There's like light blue, like the Glacier Freeze, and then there's so whatever know. regular blue is. Yeah, Frost. And then there's... I don't know. I only know Glacier Freeze hmm. and Red. That's Red. Fruit Punch. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, mailbag. Okay. First off, I really enjoy getting my daily trail fix from the trek. I also listen to Backpacker Radio when I am out hiking my local trails. I will tell you that with all the hiking that I have done, I only listen to the radio as I hiked across Kansas. So you definitely have changed my hiking listening habits. Kudos. Idaho Centennial Trail has a new guidebook hot off the press. It is for sale at Amazon and Boise REI and IdahoHikes.com. This new guide will tell a hiker where the trail is, a, serious, a seriously amazing accomplishment, but it will not make any ICT hike any less aggravating, frustrating, less of a jungle gym hike, or save the hiker and gear from being trashed repeatedly and trying to follow an evaporating trail. The authors, Jeremy and Lisa Johnson, would make a great addition to Backpacker Radio because they have good stories about that sneaky trail. Keep on talking. Marcia Powers. Dot, dot, dot. Gotta walk. And this is one that keeps popping up. We recently had uh, Patreon supporter Greg in the studio. He talked about the Idaho Centennial Trail. Nancy East just completed it. Shout out to Nancy. Yes. Nancy, we love you. That's all we can say. Um, but I will say it was fun. So Greg is the first Patreon supporter that took us up on coming in to listen to an episode. And we were a little apprehensive about how that would go just because it was the first one. It was a lot of fun. We've had lots of people reach out about wanting to do it. Just coordinating just, schedules has been tough. Right. And the one that he came to was one of the rare shows where the guest no-showed. But I will say it's no one's fault that coordinating a schedule is hard because obviously that's going to have to go into it either way. But it was a lot of fun having him here. So if you are interested in sitting in on an episode and you are near like local to the area, think about becoming a Patreon supporter because it was really fun getting to know. Like when we say the Chuck, the Chuck Norris supporters on air and we say their names every time, like that's fun. But getting to meet them like we did with Austin, 
Um, or was that Andrew? Austin Andrew McDaniel. Which one was I I grouped them as the same person. You mean at Trail Days last year? No, we met them in um Asheville when we did that meetup. That's what I meant, the Trail Days trip. It was fun. It's yeah, fun getting to sure. know a face to the name. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So if you want to come sit in an episode, consider that. It's a lot of fun. And that is something for our beautiful Chuck Norris Award winners, which we're gonna to get to in a second. Do you have a sticker code? Ooh. Um there was so much said in this episode. Anything fun you guys can think of? We said munching on something at one point that I stopped and thought about, but I couldn't remember what we were munching on. I don't remember. Have people give their favorite animal calls in the comments and why, if there's a story behind it. Okay, yeah. Um, spell out the sound your animal call makes. Mm. as Give us an onomatopoeia. It has to be as realistic as possible. That'll be fun. Yeah. Uh, I did skip over the five-star review, but I'm not going to. A show for pros and noobs. This is from Liz Shields. I'm a wannabe long-distance backpacker and started listening to your show to learn more about the community and get an idea of where to start. Love the information, guest segments, and banter. Keep it coming. P.S. If you had to pick a first-time segment hike of the PCT near Seattle, where would you go? All right, we got lots of PCT hikers in the room. Thanks. This will be a fun one. Near Seattle. The North Cascades are gorgeous up there by Hearts Pass. That would be a good spot to kind of start. There's a lot of um, unnamed little mini alpine lakes in the Notches area right outside of Rainier that I really liked. I thought the section north of, is it Skycomish Pass? Like the Kendall Catwalk? I don't remember the name of it. Uh, I just remember being in awe of that and it's pretty close to whatever the pass is that i'm thinking of i think it is guy comish probably within 10 miles that was my go-to what about goat rocks Ooh, Ooh easy yeah that's yeah, a yeah. Good one. that's a great you one. may want to save that one for the trail though that's pretty fun to walk into yeah uh, uh snow Kualami pass also that's uh maybe outlet. that's what i'm thinking of yeah. Snow pass gold Mile hot springs you can hike from snow uh snow Kualami pack uh pass to gold Mile hot springs and camp out there that'd be a really good spot to be yeah and i don't got, think you can go wrong yeah lots of good backpacking out that way mm -hmm. and one of those passes is very accessible to seattle it, it's like i-80 goes right I-90. 90? Is Snoqualmie. That's Snoqualmie. Okay, Snoqualmie is the one that I'm thinking of. And I really liked the section just north of that. Um, that would be my go-to for sure. Uh, thank you to our Chuck Norris Award winners on Patreon. That is Alex and Misty with Navigators Crafting, Andrew, Austin McDaniel, Austin Ford, Brad and Blair from 13 Adventures, Brent Stenberg, Christopher Marshburn, Dane, Ish. Do Good Pantry, Greg McDaniel, May, may he, he bring honor to his name. That's your part. Liz Seeger, Matt Suka, Mike Poizel, Morgan Luke, I am your father. Patrick Ciancialo, Sawyer Products, Timothy Hahn, and, and Tracy Trigger. Thanks. You can follow us on social media at Backpacker Radio on Instagram and TikTok at Backpacker Pod on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Backpacker Radio. You can follow Mandy and Kevin at Traveling Nature Journal and Adventurous Karma. Follow Chauncey. You can find me on Instagram at Juliana underscore Chauncey. And you can get my book, Hiking from Home a Long Distance Hiking Guide for Family and Friends on Amazon. Appalachian Trails and Pacific Crest Trails. If you're hiking either of those trails, that's it. Oh, wait, no. Uh, follow us on YouTube. We're doing YouTubes. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Hi Internet. Internet. Hi, YouTube. We've got some good video stuff coming through the pipeline. We're doing full episodes. We're doing clips. We've got some shorts. I exploded water all over my face in the middle of this. Sean's got blasted. 
Lots of good stuff coming through the pipeline. Clip that. And lastly, subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. The easiest way to make sure that you don't miss future episodes. That's it for today's very long show. Thank you so much for listening and happy hiking. Bye. I'm with the IRS. We've been trying to contact you for months. Have you not received any of our letters? Letters? What is it, 1986? I don't do letters, lady. I'm all digital. Well, if you had opened up the letters, you would understand that you're being audited. Audited? Why? What are, you, what are you talking about? I'm not scamming the government, if that's what you're saying. Your license plate says scamming. Uh, no. What do you mean, no? Yes. Okay.